Hello, hello, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you are doing magnificently. We had some great callers tonight. The first was the wife of a police officer currently facing some of the rioting and challenges in Milwaukee that happened as the result of a police shooting. And we had a great conversation about her fears, her hopes, what might happen, and how we can live in a world that we want so much to be different. The next caller was a fine young black man who is a conservative and feels like uh, he may not be entirely in conformity with the expectations of his community by not being pro-Democrat. And we had a great conversation, a role play, in fact, where I played him and he played a liberal. We talked about a variety of ways in which he could respond to various arguments, uh, Uncle Tomism and so on, which I thought was interesting and fascinating. And then we had um, not an ex-Marine, as he very clearly told me, but uh, a Marine who now is studying jazz and is in a very liberal, lefty kind of environment. And we went through some of his textbook and um, I guess made a little bit of fun of some of the things that were going on and found ways that he could gain value out of having to conform to leftist expectations in education. And um, that was, I think, a very good conversation. And the last caller was uh, a young man from Ethiopia. And he's been back recently and just wanted to know why in Ethiopia they don't really talk about smaller government. Uh, It's all who's going to be in control of it. So we looked into some of the history, some of the tribalism uh, in Ethiopia, some of the economics and some of the other barriers to possibly thinking about smaller government uh, in uh, that neck of the woods. So it was a really, really great set of callers. Thank you again so much for making all of this possible. Please, please, please help us out. Help us keep going. Help us to grow. Freedomainradio.com slash donate uh, to support us. A, a subscription, a donation. We take PayPal, Visa, bank cards, Bitcoin, you name it. Please help us out. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, as you know, at Stefan Molyneux. And you can use our affiliate link if you've got some shopping to do on Amazon at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. All right. Well, up first today, we have Mary. Mary wrote in and said... I'm a red-pilled police wife. My husband patrols a high-crime, majority-low-income black neighborhood in Milwaukee. We live and work in a city that has seen violent crime spike recently, in part due to the Ferguson effect. I've seen so many parallel stories in the news and on your show, fearing it'd be my family in the headlines at any time. I'm grateful that you've taken the time to bring facts to bear that push back against the mainstream media and Black Lives Matter narrative. Many times I feel like a woman without a tribe. On a personal level, how do I reconcile my interest in philosophy with the daily reality of my life and my love and duty to support my husband? Do you have any advice on how to weather the storm? That's from Mary. Well, hello, Mary. Uh, Hello, Mary. How are you doing tonight? I'm well, Stefan. Glad to talk to you. I've been wanting to call in for a long time. Well, I'm very pleased to chat with you, too, and hopefully we can do something um, useful. when did that old red pill come rolling around and uh, how was it applied? <laughs> uh, it came around, uh, I'd say, three years ago and it came in the form of uh, the Peaceful Parenting series. I was looking for information and I found you and I kind of, you know, went digging and kind of went all in. So I thank you for that. Uh, I thank you <laughs> for that. And hopefully your kids will thank us both. Yeah. Um, and... So you, you you did the parenting stuff for a while, and uh, obviously that's that's great. Uh, and and 
And then where did it go from there? Uh, in terms of kind of red pilling or, or you mean like... Well, yeah, I mean, because yeah. you're not calling it about parenting, you're calling it about sort of larger issues, the woman without a tribe and all of that. And of course, what your husband does and the situation that he's in. So it obviously went beyond just uh, parenting for, for you. Oh, yeah. I've listened, you know, I've listened to your um, shows on non-aggression principle and uh, all that. Oh, my gosh. And uh, um it's caused a lot of like cognitive distance for me and a lot of uh, internal conflict. So it's kind of been heavy on my mind a lot that I can't really have all my principles that I believe in, you know, in my life consistently. I know you talked about that in the past, kind of that struggle. So um, that was part of my question as well, but uh, I'm not sure if you want to go on that first, but I can add something to the conversation about the stuff going Milwaukee as well. So whatever you'd like to do. It is your conversation, Mary. Um, I am anyway the wind blows as far as what you want to chat about. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's been – I was thinking about calling into the show, and then, uh, like, my city started to be on fire. <laughs> so I basically uh, emailed Mike and put, put my question together finally, and uh, the last few days have been, been a real blur. So I kind of wrote down all my thoughts, and I don't know if – it'd be better for me to kind of read them or kind of my experience the last few days or go through a conversation. What would you like to do? I'm, I'm curious okay. to know because the, the thoughts that you wrote down were the ones more immediate to the circumstances. So if you'd like to share those, I'd be, be happy to hear. Uh, which thoughts? I'm sorry. You said that you wrote some of your thoughts down about what's been happening in right. Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. We can get that out of the way. Sure. Okay. Sure. We can get to the other personal question. <laughs> Okay, so um, Saturday night, I'll just read off this, uh, what I wrote down here. So Saturday night, when the major riots and fires happened, I had gone to bed early. Ignorance is bliss, I suppose. However, all the fires and looting went down within a few minutes' drive, only a couple miles from my home. Our neighborhood itself is solidly middle class, mostly white, and safe by most urban standards. When we do see property crime, like a stolen car or a break-in, it's mostly, most more often than not, it's a young black youth, young black man from a neighboring community. And unfortunately, because our city is so segregated, it's kind of easy to tell um, when that kind of thing happens. And so Sunday, actually, when night fell, nobody knew what was going to happen or how far riots would spread. Threats of more violence made the news from an alderman and a sister of the man who was killed by police. We were under a state of emergency as a city and National Guard was called up. Police were called in early to work shifts and extended indefinitely and instructed to prepare their riot gear. I couldn't escape a sense of dread and quiet as the night fell. Outside my window, the streets were empty. They're normally alive with people walking their dogs or jogging. Occasionally, I could hear a news helicopter in the distance or overhead, but not much else. I checked on Periscope and found a few live streams of what was happening. One live stream was from behind the police line, from, uh, I think, Tim Poole, you can look him up, and another in front of the difference. The difference was remarkable to me. Behind the police line, the atmosphere was tense, tense and serious. And I watched as the tactical unit extracted a gunshot victim from the street. In contrast, the live stream in front of the police, I saw people alternate between 
laughing, joking, screaming at the cops, playing loud music, etc. It seemed like kind of a big joke. Another live periscope of note was the from a vehicle where several young black men bragged about how they had been the first to coin the term kill walkie. I found the whole scene disturbing yet reassuring that many that maybe violence would not get out of control for a second night in a row. Then came a text from my husband around 11 o'clock at night. It read, go to your parents, 100 plus and moving towards, insert street name here, they're sending a Bearcat unit. Um, what's that? It's like an armored vehicle, just like a defense vehicle. <sighs> yeah. Right. My body went cold, and I suddenly shifted into fight or flight mode. My mind raced. Is this real? Do I really have to grab my sleeping child and flee? But after a few minutes talking it over with my husband on the phone, he determined it sounded, you know, from radio and stuff like that, it sounded much more like a smaller contained protest and looting. Yet it was much closer to home than the main protests from the other night. I spent the rest of the night coming off an adrenaline high with an AR-15 propped up to the nightstand. The past few days have left me jumpy, distracted, and with a heavy heart. I think many people here feel the same way, dismayed and angry about what has happened in our own backyard. It's not a great feeling having your hometown described as a hellscape on national news. Since then, I've seen reports of prayer circles and continued cleanup by residents in the neighborhood directly affected, which is reassuring. And during Trump's speech in Milwaukee uh, last night, he spoke directly to them. I agree with Trump that they deserve safety and security more than anyone. No one can truly achieve anything if their basic need for safety and security aren't being met. And that's kind of, I wanted to share that with you because it's kind of parallel to some of the things you've been talking about as well. I thought it was relevant to the conversation. Yes, uh, I, uh, I appreciate that. And um, it sticks with you, right? I mean, when this kind of... Um cortisol spike this fight or flight spike happens it, it takes a while for it to sort of soothe back down right oh yeah it's felt like i had a lead in my chest all all week it's just been kind of a, a unreal feeling it's just been kind of a blur like i said so it kind of gives you a, a background to how i'm feeling right now for the conversation so it's been it's been very difficult this past few days how's um how's your husband doing He's better than I am. He's a little more calm under pressure and he kind of can see the bigger picture because he's somewhat involved in the communications and everything that goes on. So uh, he's kind of calm about it. You know, he's upset about what happened, but he's not nearly as affected, I guess, as I am. And how are things now? I mean, outside in the neighborhood or outside the neighborhood? Uh, it seems better. It seems like things are kind of gone back to normal, but I, I think a lot of people are still shaken up. Um, I used to drive closer to that on a commute, and I'm not going anywhere near there anymore. So it's kind of changed my behavior in that way. I'm sure a lot of other people uh, will have the same changes in behavior as well. So yeah, it's not been, it's been a very, uh, very dark mood around here lately. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um... A very strange thing from outside, and of course I'm further outside, much further outside than you are, Mary, but it is a strange thing 
that such dominoes should fall, that a black cop should shoot a black criminal, and black people should burn down their own neighborhood in protest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's so counterintuitive. I don't, I don't yeah. even know what that means. You know, like, uh, that, I, I don't know how to process that in any rational context. No, it's not rational. And I think that I, I wrote my question probably a couple days or a week before this happened. And I mentioned like, you know, there's this tension in the air. It feels like, you know, even just from my perspective, like these news stories could be us at any moment. And, you know, lo and behold, kind of is. So it's kind of, it was kind of there under the surface. And I think they're just looking for an excuse to kind of get angry and blow off steam. So I don't think it had anything to do with it. It's not rational at all. It's an emotional reaction. No, and I remember reading, I think it was a lawyer's perspective, and the lawyer was sort of would be down at the, the courthouse and so on. And the relation, and this is, these are all very big generalizations, so I understand they're not universally applicable, but he was pointing out, he was saying, look, you know, there's all races down at the courthouse. And he said, mm -hmm. you know, the whites are kind of subdued and quiet, the Hispanics are kind of loud, but he said the blacks, they're calling to each other, they're cheering, they're there's a fundamental not taking it seriously kind of thing that occurs in that context or that environment. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a big difference, um, cultural or biological, I don't know, there's a big difference in that environment that the sort of shame or, or the uh, self-attack or whatever it is that that whites or, or Asians might experience in in running afoul of the law doesn't seem to be equally distributed among various ethnicities, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does, unfortunately. I think it's kind of a cultural, I don't even know, I think not taking it seriously, that's a better way of putting it than a joke that I said, but yeah, it's almost like it's it's so common. Like some people, they're just in and out all the time. They don't even flinch. You know, if I got a speeding ticket, I'd be ashamed for for weeks. You know, it's a, a totally different mindset, and uh, I don't know, just being used to it, I guess. And I sort of get the feeling, and it is it's just a feeling. I'm that there's some evidence for it, but I wanted to know what what you thought about this, if, if it struck your mind at all, Mary, but I sort of get this feeling that we're entering into this challenging time in society where what's happening is those who are causing the most trouble are getting their way. And those who are causing the least trouble are getting preyed upon, are getting mm -hmm. attacked. And I, I was, I watched this, um, video, I think it was a German woman who posted it about her son got beaten up by some refugees, some migrants, and the husband went out to try and deal with it. And the husband ended up getting arrested. And, you know, in conjunction with watching the Australian 60 Minutes team trying to get into little Mogadishu, uh, somewhere, I can't remember where in Europe, and um, the policeman saying, well, we're not going in there because it's really you know, they'll throw bricks at us. It's, you know, they, they won't listen and so on. It's like, okay, so they, you know, that group gets to be sort of lawless. Mm -hmm. But the Germans who respect rules and obey authority, they're the ones who are getting arrested and they're the ones who are um, getting sanctioned. And 
it yeah. sort of feels there's that going on across the West that we've hit this sort of tipping point where people who obey the law or who respect the law or, or are afraid of the law or who process the negative consequences of the law or brushes with the law. Well, they're the ones that the law is being deployed against the most. Whereas mm -hmm. the people who don't take the law seriously or who don't have any particular respect for the law, um, well, they're willing to cause more trouble. And, you know, the old squeaky wheel gets the grease. Society is saying, well, it's the law-abiding citizens who are causing the least trouble. So if we're going to apply the law, let's apply it to them because it's less risky and they're more likely to comply. They're more likely to be afraid. And the people who don't respect the law, we're just going to kind of work around that because that's more trouble than it's worth. Right. Yeah, I could see that from a practical standpoint that, I mean, even during kind of the protests, the second night here, uh, the first and second night of the riots, like, they didn't really make many arrests. They're just kind of letting them, you know, do their thing, run their course, contain them, but not, you know, make any arrests, kind of that kind of thing, just letting it run its course. And I don't think that would fly anywhere else. <laughs> For very long so it's just kind of a, a strange thing to see i agree it's not right and yeah and and this um i mean this you know we say we, we got to be multicultural and so on it's like okay but let's not be balkanized right let's have multiculturalism but we can't have different rules applied to different groups exactly right so like dorian johnson who created this false narrative of black lives matter I mean, the guy's comments about, you know, Michael Brown being shot execution style in the back of the head while I got my hands up, don't shoot, pleading for his life. That created a narrative that that got a lot of people hurt and, and got a lot of property damaged. And he lied to the cops. Anything about that? When the uh, in, in the Michael Brown case, it turned out that a lot of the witnesses lied to the cops about what happened. Any prosecutions? Right. Michael Brown's yeah. stepfather calling out for a riot. Any charges? The um, I don't know what's going to go on with the Freddie Gray. I mean, I'm sure you've you've followed that uh, with mm -hmm. a lump in your throat and ice in your heart. That uh, these three, I guess, three blacks, three non-blacks, um, the six officers who were accused of contributing to his um, death. I think they've all been acquitted now. And um, you know, as I talked about before, Mallory Mosby, uh, there seems to be some evidence of the withholding of ex exculpatory evidence from the defense and, and Brady violations and stuff like that. What's going to happen there? Right. And even, Nothing. even when, and even when the death is like, there's still payoffs to the family. Yeah. And so we've got these different rules for different groups and it's the groups that seem to behave the worst who get off the most. And I don't know if it's because, you know, if and when you, you see these, you know, these these kids who are these adults who get shot and you see the rap sheet just goes on and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. It's like this this revolving door. What is the point of that? Ah, these charges were dropped and then this happened and then he was set free and then he was put on parole and then he was back in and then he was out again. And it's like, are they just trying to keep the numbers down? Because America is very sensitive about looking racist, either internally or to the world. I mean, it just seems like there's very, there's very different rules in very different contexts of very different groups. And that, to me, seems like you don't, you don't have a country. 
anymore if that's the case. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's becoming that way more and more. And even here, the uh, the sister of the man who was uh, shot by the police, she's saying, uh, don't burn down our community, take that shit to the suburbs, you know, burn that shit down. So, oh, like, yeah. And, and the, the, the news cut her off, right? Oh, yeah, they totally did. I, I watched, uh, I think Cernovich had a periscope on that yesterday. He covered that as well. Yeah, uh, Mike, we, you've you've got more information on that, Mike. If you want, I don't want to try and re recreate that from what we talked about earlier today. Um, if you could look it up and just join us when when you've got it, because uh, that was uh, uh, that seemed like George Zimmerman style editing uh, that that occurred. And and can you imagine that if if some white person shouted something racist, that they would edit that out? Imagine if, if someone at a Donald Trump rally, rally I don't think they ever would, but if they did shout something racist, can you imagine um, CNN editing the racist part out or the aggressive part out? Uh, uh, that wouldn't happen. They'd just be playing that on an endless loop like uh, somebody's calling <laughs> your cell phone and that's your ringtone. All right. So what happened is uh, they got her saying, don't bring the violence here. Cut. She continued and said, burning down shit ain't going to help nothing. Y'all burning down shit we need in our community. Take that shit to the suburbs. Burn that shit down. We need our shit. We need our weaves. I don't wear it, but we need it. Can't make that up. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't. I don't. Okay. Obviously, there's a lot of shit in the language. And, and you know, <laughs> shit is one of these. I guess it's like a Swiss army knife. It's a multipurpose word. Right. But. Where does she go? How does she go from stuff to weaves? I don't, I mean, I know weaves can be a pretty important <laughs> part of certain communities. Um, well, they're looting weave stores. Yeah, one of the beauty salons is the ones that was hit. There was a, there were some photos of people walking out with giant handfuls of what appeared to be weaves. Yes, mm. that's, that's true. <sighs> huh. <laughs> Did did that help with the oppression from Whitey to take the weaves? I mean, does that is that I don't know. It's what what can you say? And well, and wasn't there one a while back ago? I remember seeing the video of of people. Uh, it was a bunch of blacks and maybe some others too, but they were looting this um, mall. They had helicopter footage, and even in Ferguson, they had video footage of people looting and so on. Was that ever followed up? Did people get a bunch of arrests? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. More trouble than it's worth, unfortunately. Well, it, it, it is. Of course, it is, um, it is avoiding trouble in the here and now. But uh, basically, there is, uh, okay, free pass. No rules for you. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, um, then what does it mean for there to be a law? Well, the law is there for those who already respect it. In other words, the law is there for those least likely to break it. But the law uh -huh. is not there for those most likely to break it. And of course, this provides entirely the wrong signals to the kids in that community, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go steal stuff. There are no repercussions. <laughs> yeah, well, and of course, if, if you don't need to economically join your society, right, then, right. then you don't need, like, if you're going to stay you know, on welfare or on public assistance or public housing or SNAP or food stamps, if you're going to stay on, what does it matter if you have a record? You know, it's only if you want to get into the professions or only if you want to hit the middle class or like, that's when it matters. And this is why when you sort of seal people off in this cyst of welfare, 
you create this kind of lawlessness because the incentive to obey the law goes down if you get money regardless of your record. Right. Yeah, I guess that kind of... Uh... Sorry, that's where I was. Um, we're just talking about how people uh, who are not obeying the law, I mean, there's a lot of hatred for the cops in that community, and I... I don't know. I Kind of going back to my original question as well, kind of tying that in, um, there's that element, and then there's... Uh, I've been kind of listening to like libertarian and other shows like yours that are also hate cops a lot, a lot of the people who are on the message boards and like that. And then I have kind of a group of friends who are also, you know, other police wise, other cops, you know, who are very pro police and anti, uh, would be anti anarchy, all that other stuff. So it, it's kind of a weird place to be um, seeing all these different groups fighting each other and I kind of have a I have a foot in kind of each area if you know what I mean right not putting that as eloquently as I thought but um, does that make sense yeah okay yeah now of course libertarians who use drugs illegal drugs they have a challenging or complicated relationship with the cops right there's a lot of volatility towards uh, cops in certain areas of the libertarian community because, mm -hmm. you know, they live in that concern about uh, being um, uh, being arrested for it and so on, right? So there's a challenging relationship with the cops. And, you know, yeah. I have a complicated relationship with the police as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I think a lot of what they do is necessary, but uh, my issue is not with the police, uh, but more with the intellectuals um, who are justifying all of this kind of stuff that the police probably don't really want to do that much. Um yeah, so 2012, 41.6% of African Americans are getting means-tested benefits each month. 36% of Hispanics of any race receive government assistance and 13% of whites. And uh, that's not good. And, and in certain neighborhoods, I've read it's 70 to 80% of the uh, families are getting welfare. And, yeah, I, uh, I don't know the numbers not, are for our city, but I know it's higher probably than national average from what I've heard. But for well, you guys won for uh, single single parenthood, right? I think so. I think we're we win for bad schools. We win for single motherhood. We're starting to win for crime. It's yeah, all these things are adding up. What is your um? What is your tie to the community? Well, I I grew up here. I, I've been here my whole life, and I, there's a lot to love about where I live. Like I said, it's kind of an isolated uh, area, and um, it's a it's not a bedroom community. It's like a, a real neighborhood. People talk to each other. I know all my neighbors. We talk over the fence. We look after each other. Um, there's community life, there's book clubs, there's, you know, all these great things that are are wonderful, but this whole safety and security thing, it, it undermines all of that and it doesn't it makes it not worth it sometimes. I gotta look at the kind of columns and say, here are the good, here are the bad, and there's this one really big bad <laughs> that might overthrow everything, which I think a lot of other people are feeling as well. I'm not the only one. Right.
Yes, I'm sorry, just 82% of black house, black households with children receive welfare. Wow. 76.4 uh, for Hispanics. Wow. That's a lot. That, that is a lot. <laughs> That's that a is lot. a lot. That is a lot. And uh, it's really tragic. And it allows, of course, you know, that this the welfare and immigration, of course, really tied together because if there wasn't welfare, then mass immigration would be driving down the only wages that a lot of lower income communities, which would be disproportionately black and Hispanic, be driving down their wages and they'd get really upset and they'd vote for restrictions on immigration in order to keep their wages up. But because there's welfare, if you get end up not working, you can go on welfare. So there's less pushback against immigration, both legal and illegal, of low-skilled workers who are displacing the locals. So right. it's all this big, complicated, messy knot that um, I guess only a math mathematical sword will undo at some point. So I guess that leads me to another question. Did you watch um, Trump's rally last night? Or He said similar things about law and order before, but he was talking directly to kind of the African-American community. He made it kind of the first 10 minutes of his speech yesterday or his rally here. But I wonder if that'll convince anybody. I don't know if it's because the Democrats are offering, you know, the free stuff, but he's kind of offering another incentive, which is safety and security. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I just think it's interesting. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Mary. And <laughs> I'm going to say that it will appeal to certain sections of the black community and not others. It right. will appeal to young men who want to have a life different than that of their peers or their fathers. But, you know, the woman who's got uh, four kids by three different guys, uh, none of whom are living with her. How's yeah. that? You know, more job opportunities. Well, uh, it is a challenge, right? Right. Yeah, it's more of an so. immediate incentive versus kind of a, it's more of an abstract thing, I guess. No, I mean, the reality is, and I, I firmly believe human beings are incredibly adaptable. And, uh, you know, if welfare would end tomorrow, there'd be a week or two of chaos, and then everything would be sorted out. Because people would, yeah. would pitch in, they'd help, uh, and the women uh, who, you know, would realize, you know, maybe maybe the women can't keep a, a man around because they're really nasty and bad-tempered. Well, they'd say, okay, well, for the sake of my kids, I'm going to bite my tongue and be a much more pleasant person to be around so that a man wants to live with me and pay my bills. Uh, right. Just, you know, and they, they would just adapt. And human beings, you know, this, uh, I, I, in the 90s, the welfare was cut pretty significantly. And entire departments were cut in Canada <sighs> because we were paying like a third of a dollar on, on interest payments on the national debt. And did society fall apart? Did uh, Newfoundland fall into the sea? No. People were just like, well, okay, well, it was fun while it lasted. But, you know, I, I, because I have faith in the folks, faith in the folks, that's my folk song. I have faith in the folks. People, you know, all the things that have been scattered by the welfare state, sort of mutual in interdependence and charity and friendly societies and knocking on your neighbor's door to find out if they're okay. And parents, uh, even single parents learning enough about their neighbors so that neighbors are available to babysit so that people can go out and do something productive with some portion of their day or whatever. I mean, all of that would simply return. It's not like it, it, this completely vanished, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you had generations of uh, aristocracy who in, in various European upheavals, they've been aristocrats for like a hundred, a thousand years sometimes. And then they're, you know, the aristocracy ended and they just, 
either they or their kids just went and got jobs. <laughs> you know, and that's <laughs> that's a whole that's thousands of years of you know flogging peasants and uh, banging the newlyweds. So it is. Uh, I have real faith, real belief. And it's not just faith; it's real belief that. Uh, all of the disaster scenarios that are portrayed about, oh, but if welfare ends, you know, there'll be all this terrible stuff uh, that's going on and so on. Well, um, no, I mean, it'll it'll be chaos. You know, I, this is Harry Brown talked about this. Uh, the late Harry Brown talked about this with regards to public school. Yeah, it'll be terrible for about a week. You know, public school ends, it'll be really chaotic for about a week. And then everyone's going to step in and sort it out and, and things will be much better thereby. So, you know, we're, we're only ever a week or two away from most of this stuff resolving itself. I mean, let me sort of give you one last example just so because it's a startling thesis, you know, for a lot of people to hear. You know, it's quite a startling thesis. And so when in the Second World War, millions and millions and millions of men came home traumatized from war and they were all absorbed into the labor force almost immediately and put to productive uses. There were these big debates going on in the American government. Oh, what kind of assistance do we need to give all these guys who are coming home from war and this and that and the other? The same thing happened with the previous wars, First World War and so on. And, uh, you know, millions of men turned up traumatized uh, looking for work and boom, we had this massive economy, uh, massive growth in the economy and one of the wealthiest periods in Western history. Human beings are incredibly adaptable. And of course, you know, if we say, well, it's a black white thing. Okay. Well, a lot of blacks were out in the, in the workforce. They came back and they got jobs and, and it, it all works out. And, uh, I got to think, you know, five years or a couple of years, at least for, for Americans of, you know, kill or be killed. Um, might leave people a little less functional than welfare, uh, the welfare state. So I'm very confident that there'd be a lot of caterwauling and then everything would just be sorted out pretty quickly. And everyone would look back and say, what were we so scared of? Yeah, I think there's there's some truth to that. I mean, in a way, kind of what happened on Saturday was part of my worst nightmare <laughs> because it was so close. And I mean, when the worst happened, I was asleep. I didn't even know it. Um, but I, I feel like, um, yeah, if, if the government runs out of money or if they stop, you know, or they reduce welfare payments, whatever happens, um, I'd be all for that. I just, um, I think Saturday was kind of a preview of that. And, uh, I just hope it doesn't become another, we don't have a bunch of Detroit's. You know, I hope things do settle out, but I don't know. It's, it's also well, scary. Well, no, because- but see- I'm sorry. I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt you, Mary, but hopefully this will give you some uh, <laughs> some comfort. It's a different situation because Saturday happened because there's still money, because mm-hmm. there's still appeasement, right? All, all of these activities happen because it works or they work, right? Right. Whereas if the government's genuinely out of money or if there's this general fundamental thing like this was a really bad idea, we've got to stop this before it gets any worse. If people are resolute in their pushback, I, you know, I can guarantee you that this kind of stuff won't happen. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not because my neighborhood's going to be the first to go <laughs> if it does. Sorry to laugh, but I mean, it. yeah, I, I agree. I hope to, I hope that's true. How are your kids doing with all this, Mary? Uh, the, my my uh, little boy is still young. He doesn't really know. I mean, he can kind of sense that I am stressed and distracted the last couple of days, but he doesn't. He's too young to know what's going on. And I'd like to move if things are still like this before he uh, 
gets old enough to really understand. I don't want him growing up uh, having to look over his shoulder and like that. That's not what I want for him. So we'll have to see how how it goes. What happens? Yeah, in I mean, months. I you know this this sort of question of 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 white flight and and Asian flight and so on from mm-hmm. troublesome neighborhoods. I, you know, I get some arguments which say, well, at some point, you know, where are you going to go? But right. at the same time, I don't see how any individuals can solve these problems at the moment. Like y- you can't solve this problem of terrible government policies um, leading to highly dysfunctional neighborhoods and bad education and the welfare state leading to like 84% single motherhood or, or kids being born out of wedlock among blacks in Milwaukee. And so you, you, you can't, you can hand out pamphlets and say, Hey, it'd be great <laughs> if you got married and, you know, why don't you set up your own homeschooling? And, you know, I mean, I don't know the degree to which those things can really work. Plus, you know, you've got kids of your own and, and so on. So I'm sort of ambivalent about it. Um, and I don't have any good answers other than at some point the problem will have to be dealt with. But I think the problem is, is going to be dealt with not ideologically, but as I said, mathematically. And government's mm. just going to run out of money. And uh, then those of us who've been saying what a terrible thing it is all along, hopefully we'll have some credibility um, in, in whatever comes next. Yeah, exactly. And your husband. Yes. Is he enjoying his work? Tough, he tough is. question, I know. I mean, how do you even feel? <laughs> you know what I mean? He is, despite everything. Um, he finds purpose in it, which I find hard to relate to sometimes because I see the after effects of what he's going through and what he's been through. And I I have to ask him a lot, like, is it worth it? Do you still want to do this? Like, we can do something else. Like, let's keep revisiting this topic. but. I feel like at a certain point I have to put that to bed because it's, I can't keep nagging him basically like, are you okay? Are you okay? Like all the time, you know, this constant question up in the air. So um, he does, he does pretty well. Um, he's seen a lot more than probably most in their whole career. So uh, yeah, I feel like we've kind of seen the worst already and uh, it does have a toll on him, but day to day, he still, again, like finds purpose and enjoys it. So, I'm kind of kind of stuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was eloquent of me. <laughs> Let me say that again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Thanks. No, that comes. I was just thinking while you, while you were talking, Mary, about just. I mean, I I feel, and and maybe too much. Um, I, I feel this responsibility, you know, like I have this fairly unique ability to to get ideas out and in, into the mainstream and and to get people thinking. And I have this huge audience, and uh, I have a big effect. And and so I sort of feel okay. Well, let's say I just wake up tomorrow and don't want to do it. Eh, you know, I'm going to become a mime <laughs> or something, right? I mean, I sort of feel this. Okay, well then, who's going to do it? Yeah. And uh, I. I sort of feel if you have the ability, you have some responsibility. And that's pretty abstract for me. You know, it's great when people like you call in and say, oh, you changed my mind on parenting. I did change my mind on parenting or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't okay, a parent good. before. Yes, I yes, yes. Words <laughs> yes. But uh, 
peaceful parenting. I just needed to learn how to do the opposite. Kids. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot. And I, I see effects, ripple effects that I have in, in political discussions. And, and um, you know, we've got we've got quite a network here. We don't really really talk about it, but we've got quite a network of people who know what it is that we're doing and uh, are aware of the arguments and praises and criticisms that I'm putting out. And uh, we hear very much through the back channels, uh, the, 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 the insidious spider finger fog um, octopus through the uh, looking glass reach that we have in the world. So it's hard to walk away from that. It's hard to walk away from that because if you have ability and the need is great, I think you have a responsibility, you know, a doctor in the time of plague, as I've talked about before. Now that's very abstract for me. The, the degree to which it's visceral for your husband, I, I can't even imagine. Like, because if he says, okay, oh, well, yeah. let's say I walk away. You know, I'm going to go patrol Maybury and try and find elderly jaywalkers and help them across the road <laughs> or something. I think that he's got to think, if he pulls himself out of that community, what's going to happen in that community? Who's going to replace him? What, they, what are they going to be like? And, you know, if he feels like he's holding back a, a, a dam of blood and he walks away and it crumbles, I could see that being... A difficult thing to walk away from. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely a part of it for him. Uh, he does feel like he's making a difference despite kind of the flood of <laughs> crime, if you will, violence. Um, he does get feedback from people who he, he has uh, interacted with, come back later and thank him or uh, talk to him. And uh, even, um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, yeah, he, he deals with people very much on a personal level. Like it's not even just enforcing laws. It's kind of in a way, social work and counseling and it, he becomes kind of, you know, a part of someone's story in a way. And, um, he tries to make, I guess a positive impression. I, I don't know another way to put it, but that's that's. I know that's the way he sees it. I know that's not all cops. He's kind of exceptional in that way, but um, he feels like he's making a difference every day, and that's that's hard to argue with. Yeah, look, he's married to you. You listen <laughs> to me, so um, I'm going to assume he's not run of the mill, Ken. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I totally get that, and I I respect. You know, obviously he is making a difference. And if he's a good cop who helps people uh, then and helps keep them safe from the bad people, not to get overly technical, I feel like I'm <laughs> reading some sort of kid's, kid's story about good and evil, but but he's making a positive difference and it's important. And he can't know for sure or rely on the fact that whoever's going to replace him is going to be as good or as committed or as gentle or as whatever the virtues that he brings to the job. So yeah, it is I... uh, it is a tough call. And, and there is this basic reality that wherever the higher IQ, more functional ethnicities go, the lower IQ ethnicities follow, complaining about racism. You know, like white <laughs> people move away, Asians move away, and then Hispanics and blacks want to move to where they are again. Because apparently racism is so terrible, you just, you really need to check it's still there and see it up close and so on. And, and it is because people don't understand race and IQ and they don't understand the dysfunction of the welfare state. They don't understand this process. Which is that because everyone's being told that everyone's equal, there's no biological differences, no cultural differences that, that have any effect on life choices or anything like that. So everyone's the same. So where whites and Asians go, there are pretty good neighborhoods, pretty peaceful, pretty well tended, pretty nice. And then other minorities go to those neighborhoods and say, wow, this is fantastic. 
they're hoarding it from us. They're keeping it from <laughs> us or they stole it from us or whatever it is. Like We want what's over here with the whites and Asians and the Jews. We want that. Right. And so then they try to get get it and it doesn't work out for welfare plus IQ plus culture plus whatever reasons we've we've talked about a million times before. And if you look at Detroit, Detroit was, you know, largely white and it, it, the richest city in, in America and, uh, uh, you know, and so blacks move in and then it's like now it's not. And and this is the great challenge. So the, the white flight thing is like at some point, right? I mean, <laughs> it, we're going to have to actually deal with some facts uh, about race, IQ, biology, brain volume. And we're just going to have to deal with these facts because the longer everyone says everyone's the same – then the cycle is just going to repeat itself that, you know, the whites, the Asians, the Jews, the higher IQ groups are going to build these relatively good, decent, productive, functional cities and neighborhoods and countries and environments. Then other groups are going to move in and the whites are going to move out, you know, <laughs> because it doesn't work that way. Um, and it used to work better before the welfare state, but the welfare state has made it much, much, much worse, uh, as has yeah. the war on drugs, as has a variety of other factors. So... Yeah, I um running away is is only postponing the problem and and in a way making it worse, but at the same time staying is, you know, you certainly wouldn't want to stay and put your kids at risk or or yourself at risk, your husband and so on, and you can't change it directly anyway because it's ba based on counterfeit money and and uh, biological uh obfuscation, so it's challenging. Yeah, it definitely is. I don't want to move. I like it here. <laughs> we put down roots, but yeah, we have to Moving deal sucks, with it. Yeah. I deal with it eventually. I will have to see what happens in that case. But I just want to touch on something you said earlier about him wondering who will rep replace him if he goes elsewhere. And I've actually wondered that myself. And I, I have to actually wonder what kind of effect, um, like all this Black Lives Matter and Ferguson effect. How, what's that? What's that having on kind of the new recruits? Like, who is that going to change? Who is signing up to? Uh, become a police officer, you know, for the worse. Yes. Because, yeah, it might have the exact effect that uh, people are complaining about. Might not might keep the kind of smarter, more compassionate people away. Like, I wouldn't want to become a police officer if this was like it was when we, when we started. It was totally different. So uh, it's totally changed. Look. <laughs> Look. Sorry. I'm just... <laughs> ordered all this information down your throat. Sorry about that. Look, Mary. <laughs> right, but, um, the reality is it's tough being a police officer, obviously. It's not the most dangerous profession, strangely enough, but uh, it is definitely a risky profession at times. So it's one thing if you're facing the criminals, but you have the support of the community, that is one thing. And I think that's what makes the job not just bearable, but but a plus. If you're mm -hmm. considered to be heroic, if you're like if people are grateful, if everyone except the criminals is happy that you're there, and if you have the back, of the, if the media has your back, that is really really important. I mean, compare the media's view of cops now, particularly white cops in America, compared to the media's view of soldiers in World War II. You know, the soldiers in World War II off there fighting. Uh, the Japanese and fighting the 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 Germans and pretending to fight the Italians who are running away, um, they they were out and out heroes, fighting 
fighting soldiers in uniform, you know, they were just out and out heroes. They were portrayed positively. Everyone had their back and they, you know, were very heroic and so on. Now, of course, compare that to, you know, the you're a baby killer stuff that happened in Vietnam. And it's a very different kind of situation. And, the, you know, I'm putting myself in the, in the mentality of a cop. It would be something like this. Well, there are the bad guys who want to do me harm. There are the people who call me into that neighborhood who are happy that I'm there. You know, like people get, get upset, upset about Bill, Bill Clinton's uh, expansion. I think it was a minimum sentencing during the crack e epidemic in the 90s. But it was black community leaders who were desperate for the government to do something because crack was just just destroying neighborhood uh, block by block by block. It was like this neutron bomb that was going off and shattering everything. And Heather McDonald's has got a great book called The War on Cops. We interviewed her recently and, uh, again, highly, highly recommend it. So for a cop, you go, okay, the, the criminals I get, they want me harm. We're in sort of the enemies and, and I get that, right? But what about everyone else in society? Well, if you have a confrontation with a criminal, of course, it could be the cop doing something wrong and it, you know, that all needs to be investigated. I'm obviously keen on that like everyone. But how is it going to be a fair process? How is it going to be played out? And of course, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to realize that every single cop in a confrontation with a black suspect is incredibly aware of the danger of that situation. Even if he goes by the book, even if he does everything right, doesn't matter. You know, it might not matter if the media just happens to fasten onto that one. His life may be destroyed. I mean, Absolutely. I remember reading about some, I think it was a detective who submit to a beatdown from a suspect rather than try to use force to arrest him. You know, maybe he'll just tire out. You know? mm -hmm. But rather than use force to arrest him, he just submitted to a beatdown because he basically said, well, if I use force and it goes wrong and the media gets, you know, my life, I'd rather take the beatdown now than, you know, spend the next three years going through a murder trial or, or you know, what say this guy has a weak heart and I don't even know about it. And so... You you know, it's it's the old multi-front war. Most competent militaries can fight a one-front war, a one-front war. A few can do two fronts, very few can do three, and I can't think anybody who'd do a four-front war. And so for cops, it used to be the, that the media would have your back and the community would have your back and be grateful that you were there and the bad guys would be your enemies. But you had more allies than enemies. And I don't think that's the case for cops in America. And now, uh, after Milwaukee, it's not even the case for black cops in America. Black <laughs> cops shot, and right there, still riots, right? right? Because, uh, and and the fact, um, well, let's go back to that in a sec. So, so how many, how many fronts can you fight on as a cop? And if you are going to be sacrificed to politically correct prosecution, or, or politically motivated prosecution, of which there's been a wide variety, I would believe, or I believe in American jurisprudence recently, if you're going to be subjected to potentially politically motivated malicious prosecution and so on, and if it's going to be an unfair process, and even if you get acquitted, what about Darren Wilson, who shot Michael Brown? Michael Slager shot Walter Scott. We don't know what's going to happen with Michael Slager. Darren Wilson was acquitted, as was George Zimmerman. Well, did they get to go back to their lives just as they were? They do not. Mm -mm. And so I think that for cops, we know now from the Ferguson effect that when society 
well, in, I shouldn't say society, when the media becomes an enemy of the police, then criminal activity escalates, particularly in the most vulnerable and dysfunctional neighborhoods. That, that seems fairly, the Ferguson effect of increased crime as the result of crippled policing as the result of all of this, uh, the, the politicians, the media, sometimes even the police's own departments going against the cops because they're afraid of riots. And it's not because they're afraid of riots. Because I think Giuliani pointed out riots are pretty easy to quell. You just go and arrest a whole bunch of people, you know, and you just use force to quell the riots and, and people go home. But because that has been taken off the table, I think largely as a result of, you know, Obama and the media and, you know, all of this sort of stuff, the quell the riot situation has diminished, which means that because you can't stop a riot, you now have to prevent a riot. And the way to prevent a riot is to attack the cops who whose behavior is even remotely questionable. And the media, of course, will pump that up until, right, that, that occurs. And I think for a cop, you know, who's, who's your friend? It's okay to have the enemy who's the criminal. That's that, that you understand that you know that going in. But if then the politicians and uh, maybe even your own internal prosecutors or, or reviewers and the media and who knows, right? If all mm -hmm. of these groups also become your enemy, who remains, who is, who has got your back and who would want to be in that situation where you're fighting a forefront war that could cost you uh, everything? Yeah, well, I mean, nowadays who has their back? It's other, other cops, other police families, the thin blue line, if you would call it that. I mean, I'm breaking the code talking to you, Steph. So, um, I mean, the media has been uh, kind of, anti-police at least here for a long time and um yeah that's that's a lot of as you said it's a lot of um fronts for a war like that and right now i feel like you know on the home front that you know that's kind of a war he has to fight as well because i'm i'm not in a, pl a place where i can effectively hold like these two ideas in my head at the same time. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling to listen to your show and accepting the non-aggression principle and wanting to have that throughout my life. But yet my husband works for the government and he's a cop and all the, you know, obviously all that stuff. So I, I can't keep fighting this, this war with him. Basically it's not been overt. It's not been, and he knows how I feel this way. It's not news to him and he'll listen to this. So um, I need to find a way to uh, to resolve it. And I don't know if you have any experience or advice on that. Well, but you're still yeah. being rather relatively indirect. Okay. Mary, right. Which is to resolve this. Uh, you know, what is it that you would want ideally? What I want ideally is for him to not be a cop anymore, but he's not going to do that. So. Well, hang on. Sorry. Now, <laughs> not be a cop. Do you mean anywhere? Anywhere. Anywhere. So you don't want him to be a cop, even if it's um, uh, relatively secure or benign or, you know, traffic tickets and stuff. I would be happier with that. But I mean, 
the sacrifice in my mind is it's too great. The physical danger, um, holidays, weekends, nights, all these things that are taken for granted by normal people. I want to take a walk with my family at night. I can't do that. You know, these, <clears throat> I, I'm tired of it. <clears throat> I'm tired of this life. And, uh, you know, adding in philosophy and these new ideas that I'm trying to accept and add into my life doesn't help. It's kind of the last straw. Um, so I guess, yeah, how do I, how do I be okay with it? How do I be okay with him staying as, uh, staying in his profession? I don't know. I'm having trouble forming a, a coherent No, no, listen, no, I'm I, I, I'm glad for that directness. I wasn't <laughs> sure what, what you wanted before. No, and I, I, I appreciate that directness. And as far as how are you okay with it, we, listen, Mary, we are all making enormous compromises to live in the system that we're in. Do you think I am able to follow all of my ideals with a perfectly free conscience and free movement? Of course not. Of course not. And we are all making compromises to do the best that we can in an environment that is not always very conducive or friendly, to put it mildly, to reason, debate, and factual evidence. So don't feel alone at all in the gap between what you want and what is. What is. Between how you would like to live and how it's possible to live at the moment. We all have that gap. We mm -hmm. all have to face that gap and deal with it. And the great temptation is to say that somehow the gap between how my ideals dictate that I live and what is possible for me in the current society, the temptation is to say that that gap it's kind of like a cavity that's got to be filled. It's like a flat tire that's got to be fixed. It's not. It can't be. We can't. We do not have the power to move society to close that gap. Neither do we have the power to change the reasoned arguments that create that high standard of the non-aggression principle. I would love to live a life where there was nothing in what I had to do that would ever contribute to violations of the non-aggression principle. Right? I would love to live that life. I'm just under six feet tall. That is 20,000 feet in the air, right? <laughs> and I can't grow to the sky, and I can't pull the sky down to me. There is that gap. The gap, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's not your husband's fault. It's not the fault of the people he's policing. That gap exists because of history and because of inertia and because of terrible government schools and because of propagandistic media and because everybody, anybody who admits that gap opens themselves up for attacks of hypocrisy. Oh, yes, Steph, do you pay your taxes? Right? <laughs> You're yeah. using the internet. That was invented by the government. You know, like, it's just, oh, fuck off. <laughs> idiots, right? The ha ha, you know, it's like that kid in the Simpsons, you know, that that's all it, it adds up to. So when you say there's a gap between what is 
what I want, what I thirst for, what I need, what my children deserve to live in, when there's that gap, we have to stare at that gap. We have to say, not my doing, not my fault. And if I can close that gap by two feet before I'm dead, I'm a huge fucking hero. We all have to live with the gap. And it, it's tortuous. And it's supposed to be tortuous yeah. because that's what makes us want to close it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's K-selected. It's K-selected gap. Because we want things to be better. We want all the people in the world to have a better life, to have a better start, to have realistic information about their capacities and limitations, to have great parenting, to not have an intrusive state that's shoveling and ordering and pushing them around like they're basically just a bunch of poker chips, which they kind of are when it comes to votes and bribery uh, around the green field of a casino table. So we all want to close that gap because we don't have to be like religious people to die to get into heaven. We can actually have heaven in the here and now, but we can't. Right? We can picture it. We can picture it. And I've written extensively about it. You know, when I was writing um, Practical Anarchy, I'm like, I was in tears sometimes. Like, I, I just so much wanted to live there. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you're like, you, I feel like somebody in a, in a dungeon. And, and, and every day there's a little mailbox in the cell door. And every day people, sadistic, nasty guards with felt on their feet, so I can't even hear, hear them move. They come to my cell my dungeon, the lightless nothing, one little light from a tiny window somewhere up there. They come and they open the mail slot and they push through brochures for Caribbean vacations. <sighs> and I'm sitting there cross-legged, smelly, not cool Socrates beard, but like homeless, crazy guy, bug-eyed, Marty Feldman-style beard. And I'm sitting there cross-legged and there's there bugs crawling all over my legs and in the tiny little keyhole light coming down from this little skylight in the middle of nowhere, I thumbed through these glossy brochures of the white beaches and the crystal clear oceans and the people who are floating on rafts and they look like they're just levitating in the little shadow is the only way you can tell how deep the water is. It's so clear and beautiful and there are dolphins jumping in the spray and there's some waiter waiting out <laughs> with some cool fruity drink that I will feel comfortably masculine enough to sip. And I, I want to just put my head in my little lightless dungeon. I want to put my head in that book and push my way through like I'm being born through paper into a better world. And it is, um, it is heartbreaking because when you have the mental machinery to design the blueprint of a world that would be as perfect as it can be for everyone in it, and all that stands between you and that world is the pig ignorance and indoctrinated resistance of just about everyone. <laughs> you know, that's the, the walls are people. The walls are not walls. The walls are people and people's backs who won't turn around and see what could be, what, where we could be, where we could get to. And we could get there tomorrow if people would listen to reason. We could get there tomorrow if people would care enough about their children to want it, to want it. I mean, we have got this massive, giant indifference to the future, to, to our children. 
we let them rot away in terrible schools. We, we hit them. We borrow against their collateral to bribe elderly people who might get squawkily upset if their benefits get borrowed. And we can all see that world like a, a woman in a desert with a throat like pecked sand, so thirsty, sees a mirage. And the only thing, she knows it's a mirage, but she can't stand the idea that it's a mirage, so she stumbles over the sand anyway. So you have a world that you want, Mary. I have a world that I want. And we meet in that world. We meet in this conversation in that world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, the Caribbean glassy, gorgeous ocean is in the whispering between the cracks of the dungeon. And you want it. You want it for your children. You want it for your neighbors. You want it for everyone. You want it for the people running and throwing bricks and burning. We want that free world for them because they clearly can't understand how to get it themselves or how to get it in their own personal lives. Maybe if the cues from outside, from above are there. Maybe if they can't build a candle, we can at least turn on the sun. So there's a gap. And it's a horrible gap. And it's a painful gap. And that pain is how we close the gap. But we can't close it ourselves. We can have conversations like this. We can put out the ideas. We can be aggressive. We can be appeasing. We can be affectionate. We can be empathetic. We can be stern. We can ostracize. We can hold close. We can do everything that we can in the dance to lure this frightened bird of the future into our hand. And we can't reach out. It's like a bird. You want to catch that bird. The, 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 the hope. Hope is the thing with feathers, as they say, right? You want to catch that? You can't reach up and get it because the damn thing can fly. You've got to find some way to get it into your hand, and it's maddening. The bird sometimes flies by or flashes by like a comet, like a thought. And we have to try and get this feathery freak of freedom (laughs) to come into our hands so that we can have the world that we want, the world that is right, the world that is free, the world that is peaceful. And when you cry out in your heart or even aloud, Mary, for the world that you want, you expose a giant pasty white flank of hideous narwhal-style vulnerability. Because the moment people say that, the moment people understand that you want something and you're frustrated by not getting it, a lot of people will torture you with its distance and will attack you for not living in the world that doesn't exist yet. And that's like yelling at people for not taking the train when the train hasn't been invented and won't be for another hundred years. And so when you say, well, I'm into the non-aggression principle, I want the non-aggression principle. I want the non-initiation of force at every level, societal, individual, personal, parental, political, everywhere. And what do people say? Well, your, your husband's a cop. How does that fit? Well, you pay taxes. You send your kids to government school. How does that fit? Boom, boom, boom. Here, here's my white pasty flank. I put little targets here for the harpoons that you'll sadistic little empty souls will launch at me. So not only do we want that world, do we want 
that bird, do we want those clouds to somehow fall like rain into our hands? But very, even, even to express what we want so often invites attack. So we have to keep our greatest dreams like a dirty secret. We can't tell people because they'll attack us for the gap. Because when we talk to people about the gap, we reveal a greatness of soul that stains them with smallness, right? The first people to say, hey, maybe we can end slavery, reminded people that they're taking this javelin throw through life completely passively and and dependently and, and in a conformist, cowardly way. And the size of your gap and your hunger to close it diminishes other people. It turns them from their own solipsistic or narcissistic mental greatness into inconsequential nothingness, like tears in rain, as the saying goes. So even to say there's a great world that I want to get to, that I am dying to get to, and that I will live to help achieve this great world of peace and freedom and reason and thought and independence and evidence, I want that world. I'm desperate for that world. That diminishes other people who have no missions. Who have no missions. There's an old chieftain. I think it was in Ireland when they first met the Christian missionaries. said this before. And he said, life after death. Never really thought about it. All we've done is really think that life is like a bird flying through a house from one window to another. It comes and it goes. We don't really think where it comes from or where it goes. It's just flying through the house. And if you are mere meaty muscle and you meet someone who's looking for life after death, you feel diminished if you believe that that's possible. So you have a dream for your children and for the world. That is the greatest dream in history. And and tragically, you have this dream, Mary, and you have been born into a world that has given up on the spinal fortitude necessary to achieve great things. I was just thinking about this today, you know. We used to, the West, we used to challenge institutions. We used to uproot these oak trees of history By the day, it seemed like. I know it's all compressed in history like a squished up accordion, but, you know, we used to take on the aristocracy and take them down. We took on the unity of church and state and pried them apart. We created havens of free speech in the West. We took on slavery. Certain aspects of the subjugation of women, we took all of these things on like it weren't no thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? Like like we were just like, oh, hey, while I was sleeping, a tiny spider made a cobweb on my arm. I think I will lift it. Boom! Slavery is done. Let us have a republic for the first time in 2,000 years. Let us make heaven on earth, no matter what the sacrifice and we used to have. Not just those dreams but the fortitude to pursue and achieve them 
which is why we have the remnants of a great world that we're trying to keep alive. We used to control the mind. We used to control power. We tamed the great beast of hierarchy and turned it into equality before the law. And for some reason, over the past hundred years, we have given up on our belief that we can challenge fundamental principles, fundamental organizational principles in society and outgrow them, that we can tear down the injustices and the abuses of power in the world. It is no more challenging to end the state than it was to end slavery. Slavery was the foundational institution, was the, a very powerful institution for all of human history, and was the foundational economic organization of the world. And then it wasn't. And it was ended. And as a result of it ending, we gained 100 and 150 years of post-industrial revolution. Avoid the doom of Rome scenario until we turn taxpayers into slaves. And it all began again. But we used to take these things on, and we used to ferociously fight to end the injustices and abuses of power in the world, wherever they manifested. And we don't do that anymore. We don't look at the Jupiters of injustice. We allow little tiny dust motes to sting our eyes and blind us. We don't look at what funds and fuels war and dysfunction and degradation and control and welfare. The submerging and subjugation of entire classes to repetitive grinding poverty. We don't look at that anymore. We talk about microaggressions and mansplaining. And, and well, isn't it terrible that men spread their legs a little bit on the subway? This is what we have been diminished to. We, 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 we chase after the imaginary ghosts of imaginary racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever. We, we don't have any battles anymore. We have petty digital skirmishes that mean nothing. And we have been so scraped of greatness. We have been so massaged by material comfort into spinelessness. Civilization has become our exoskeleton. The whole point of having an exoskeleton is you don't need a spine anymore. No spine in a lobster. No spine in a crayfish. No spine in an oyster. No spine in a shrimp. So we've allowed ourselves to be encased in the comforts of civilization. We've lost all our spine, which means we'll get to lose our exoskeleton and won't yet have a spine. So it's going to take some muscle. So Mary, I, I hear you and I understand you want the world that should be the world that you've heard about the world that you understand the world of the non-aggression principle. And we can't get it. And it's tortuous that we can't get it right now. It's good that it's torturous. It means that we'll keep fighting for it. And if we talk about it, people attack us for hypocrisy. Not 
for having great visions of egalitarianism before the moral law that we cannot attain. They attack us for any desire for greatness, because our greatness makes them feel small, while it makes us feel great and big and powerful. And they feel that we're robbing them <laughs> of their greatness or their imaginary greatness. So they want to attack us for our elevated ideals, and that's predictable and understandable and downright boring. So how do you live with an all-consuming hunger for a better world? You work to make it and just step over those in the way. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there, as usual. <laughs> I, the, the Sometimes it's an, it's an arrow over a house, but I'm glad it landed somewhere useful. It, I, I was half seems, expecting this. No, 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 I was I was captivated. It's it seems obvious now, but um, I think the way you said it, the gap that that has been very vulnerable and uncomfortable. And yeah, seeing how you things want th you want them to be and how they could be and how they are in certain areas, but it can't be it can't be everywhere. I don't have control over that. Um, I I totally relate to that sentiment. I think that's I think that's a lot of what's going on. I do. <sighs> I've given you absolutely nothing to do. <laughs> just, you know, like, what do I do? It's a meant like, it, I, and we will be. You know, we, we're tortured into trying to do something, but um, raise your kids, love your husband. Um, um, you know, keep talking to him honestly about what you think and feel. Yeah. But I, I understand. Like, if if I if I don't do a show tomorrow, nobody dies. But if your husband doesn't go to work tomorrow, that's a possibility. That is a you know, for dudes in particular. You know, we're we're known for being a tad disposable and taking on a few too many burdens. <laughs> so um, yeah. that's that's part of it as well. But oh, at some yeah. point, it's his kids that matter and, and you that matter, right? It's your family that goes through life with you, not the people you're rescuing from a dysfunction you can't solve. <sighs> exactly. All right. Will you keep us posted? I will, of course. Yeah, thank you. I... I needed to talk to you about this. This has been bothering me for a long time. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for letting me uh, kind of talk in general before about what's going on, but it kind of gives a backdrop to, I think the personal stuff as well. So I, I appreciate it. All right. Well, keep us yeah. posted and, and thanks so much for your call. You're welcome back any, any time. Okay. Thanks, Steph. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Up next is Ben. Ben wrote into the show and said, as a young black conservative, my ideas are not exactly mainstream. Most of my peers are very liberal, and most older adults vote blue no matter what. Your show and the internet in general have fostered my desire to become a free thinker. My question to you is how can I engage my peers in the black community, or leftists in general, to get them to at least question the Democratic Party, what it stands for, and to be more open to moderate or conservative views? That's from Ben. How you doing? Hello, Ben. How you doing, brother? Uh, doing all right. Doing all right. How are you? I'm well. I'm well, thank you. Um, yeah, challenging. <laughs> challenging position. It's the old minority within a minority kind of thing, right? Yeah, for, for sure. 
first of all, what the hell were you thinking <laughs> in taking this path? And secondly, how did this come about? Um, well, basically, um, my entire life, I've kind of had, I guess, differing views from most people uh, in my community. Um, uh, I never really liked how my community was shaped or formed. And so I look to alternative, uh, I guess, I guess viewpoints to, I guess, explain the world and uh, how I wanted it to be and stuff like your show and conservative talk radio, for some reason, I find really interesting. <laughs> was there, uh, Ben, was there any particular moment where I sort of think of like, um, I had model trains when I was a kid uh, and uh, you'd get these little branchers, right? They'd sort of the track would go off in another direction, switchers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you throw the switch and you just, you just, your train goes in a different direction. Was there any particular moment where that kind of click switch through and you, you realized, wow, this is a completely different direction now. Hmm. Uh, I guess thinking back, um, oh yeah, in particular, uh, um, when I was in, I guess, high school and I would talk about not even like right wing views, like, not like anti-abortion or anything like that, but just stuff like, like, oh, you know, the welfare state isn't a good thing, or like, you know, black people probably shouldn't be on welfare too much. I would be just attacked. And it was at that point that I was like, we we have to change this. I can't be on the same side as, uh, I guess, the mainstream community in that sense. And what... um what were the arguments that would come back when you said, uh, you know, blacks shouldn't be on welfare as, as much? Like I was just quoting some statistics that, you know, over 80% of uh, black families with kids uh, are, are on welfare. And is yeah. that a really controversial position to say maybe we should pull back on this as, as Midge? Yeah, mostly you get, oh, well, you know, um, without welfare, you know, we can't survive or like stuff like that or you know, there was wealth stolen from us hundreds of years ago. And, you know, we need this to, you know, stay on track or to get ahead. And it's kind of like, it's baffling sometimes. Yeah, you know, and I obviously nobody's going to defend slavery in any way, shape or form. But, uh, you know, if, if slavery was so productive, then why was the North, which didn't really have slavery, wealthier than the South? And why right. have the countries who've given up on slavery ended up much more wealthy than those countries that have retained it? And also, if the, you know, forcible transfer of other people's productivity is so bad, and welfare comes from taxpayers, uh, <laughs> you know, isn't that, yeah, yeah. that, you know, you know, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Right. We can't survive without welfare that you were saying that was sort of an argument, right? Yeah. Why? Um, I guess not. Why I, is that an argument? <laughs> Sorry, that oh, was a bit ambiguous. But why? Why? Why is that perspective that the, the, the blacks that can't survive without welfare? Um, I guess in the communities I grew up in, uh, initially, I, I, we weren't necessarily poor, but, but we lived in a, I guess, a poor area, and um, a lot of the people didn't have jobs or whatever, and they didn't have, I guess, the economic prospects to, to see beyond welfare as a means of getting ahead. And I guess that's a really prevalent thing in a lot of black neighborhoods that uh, um, I guess other communities might not might not experience. But I mean, American blacks, of course, do see that there are blacks who succeed 
in American society. I mean, some of them, of course, American blacks and, and a higher proportion, of course, blacks coming from overseas, right? Immigrants and so on. Uh, we just had one on recently, a fine fellow from Nigeria who was talking about, um, the disconnect, lack of connection that he felt with American blacks. So there mm. is that view, right? That, that, you know, if it's, if it's monolithic white racism, then there shouldn't be any black success really going on. Uh, it should be, you know, black succession. It should be like black membership in the KKK. It just doesn't, doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> and so there, there is, there is a view that, you know, it's not like a Denzel Washington film that opens up and the KKK are like, you can't see this because there's a black actor. Right. In it. It's like that. He's like a, and he's a very charismatic, uh, and popular actor. Um, so there are exceptions to that idea so where because it's a, it's a big insecurity and i'm not trying to make it only psychological but it's a big insecurity to say well some blacks like some whites can make it some hispanics can make it some blacks can make it but we can't that puts yourself in a different category if that makes sense yeah like there's this it, i guess you were uh kind of alluding to it like this white racism type thing um but the usually the code word for it is the system and it's like oh the system is keeping us down and oh you 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 know the system and capitalism is is keeping us down and they'll, they'll forever keep us slaves and whatnot and there's not a lot of trust in i guess you know working hard and you know doing your best and getting wealth because they think it's like akin to winning the lottery ah okay okay is there you know i'm sorry to ask these leading questions and you know <laughs> Tell me if I'm if I'm going astray or if I'm I'm putting too much into this. Just 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 obviously push back if I'm going astray. But sort of if 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 it's like well capitalism, it doesn't work for us. Is there this perception that having a job is kind of like being a slave? Um, it depends on who you would ask. Uh, a lot of the like the really the really fringe like black power people, they would say yes. Um, I guess. Most moderate, I guess, normal. I don't want to say in quote unquote normal black people um, probably wouldn't think that. They think you're you weren't. Oh wait, let me rephrase that. It's not necessarily um, the majority of the black community that feels that way, but there there is a subset that is very vocal that influences other people that feels that way. Well, and <laughs> that's not just in the black community. There's an <laughs> annoying number of every ethnicity uh, that uh, uh, talks about uh, wage slavery. You know, <laughs> voluntary association is exactly the same as coercion. And, like, and uh, usually they're yeah. bemoaning the fact that they don't have much economic value to add and therefore can't make much money. But um, so it's not it's not a very common position. It is there probably among more radical socialists as there is in every group, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And. So the, the the system is is that sort of the it, that's the word that explains you know what is hugely tragic in not just American society around the world, which is the de facto the black communities are not doing stellar in in many places, right? Yeah, and that must be a tough. I mean that that is a that is a tough pill to process, right? For sure, it, I I've gotten into I I'm I'm pretty argumentative i'd say i did debate for like five years but and i get into little arguments online and stuff like that and people will will just blame these abstract like boogeymen 
for real world problems and but but they won't do anything to change it they they don't move for positive change right like, and and sorry no go ahead go ahead sorry i was gonna say it's like oh the system is bad but you know I'll keep, you know, voting Democrat or, oh, the system is bad. You know, my community is horrible, but I'll still vote for the same people I've been voting for for 40, 50 plus years. Right. Right. So this, this magic word system, also, it doesn't it create this sort of monolithic, really high to get over wall in terms of really motivating people to achieve you know if i if i think something something's impossible i'm not really going to try it's that old thing that henry ford said where he said well if you think you can or you think you can't you're right and you know with some right. limitations of course you know i'm not going to be a gymnast but uh, uh there is some truth in, especially in the if you think you can't well you're certainly right about that right 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 so Engaging your peers in the black community or leftists in general to get them to at least question the Democratic Party, what it stands for, and to be more open to moderate or conservative views. Now, Ben, what are the most important ideas? Just give me sort of the top maybe two most important ideas you'd like to get across to your peers. Hmm. I guess things like um, the free market and... Uh, let's see. And the non-aggression print. Yeah, okay. Those are, I, <laughs> those are two big ones. So that's good. That's yeah, good. yes. Do you want to do a little role play? Like you can play some some lefty and I can play you? Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sell my soul for a little bit to play lefty, but yes. <laughs> okay. You might need a shower with a fiery loofah after this, but, you know, let's, let's give it a try, all right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, hey, lefty. No. <laughs> All right. Um, so um, I just wanted to talk to you about, you know, some things that I think would be pretty positive, kind of cool about. Tell me what you think. What is it when I say free markets or what is that? What does that mean to you? From from the leftist point of view? Yeah, just be that lefty dude. Well, free markets make it so big, uh, shadowy, evil corporations will take advantage of poor brown people. I'm guessing that's not a positive evaluation from you, so <laughs> let's start with what we're working from. So the free market technically, you know, just in that annoying dictionary way, the free market just means voluntary trade, right? Like, we, we let, let's just take the free market out of the equation. If that's what you think it means, then that's not obviously anything anyone wants to defend. But if it <laughs> means sort of voluntary trade, does that sound better or feel better for you at all? Uh, I guess if it was completely voluntary and there weren't any power indifferences. Okay, all right, so so good, all right. Because, you know, one of the great evils of all human history is slavery, and slavery was not part of the free market because it obviously, by definition, the slaves weren't there voluntarily and weren't paid. So uh, the degree to which we can encourage voluntary trade you know, we all need to trade to live. I can't produce everything that I need. I got to go to the dentist. I don't like making my own pants. So chaps, yes, pants, no. But um, the more we can promote kind of voluntary trade, I think um, the better. Is that like reasonable? Uh, yeah, but what, what about 
about the people who who don't have anything to give to society? Well, you mean like children? Well, we don't generally try to get them involved in too many economic activities because they won't allow us to put them down mines anymore. It's terrible, right? So you mean kids? Well, you know, kids don't have a lot to offer economically, but we don't expect them to participate in that. Do you mean adults? Yes. Okay, that is a great question. So let's just say 18 plus, right? 18 or more. So by the time someone's 18, how long have they been in school? Say 12 plus years. Yeah, 12 plus years. And of course, that doesn't mean that the only education they get is in school. Um, you, you know, you read on the internet, you read books, you have conversations with people, you go to meet, you might go to political meetings in your teens or whatever. I mean, there's lots of ways. So you've had, you know, a dozen years of full time education. So how is it possible that someone gets to 18 after a dozen years of education? and doesn't have any economic value. Hmm. Well, it could have something to do with the government schooling, but I like the government. Well, the fact that you went through government schooling and like the government might not be unrelated, <laughs> but just putting that to, to aside for a moment. You know, we talked about voluntary trade. Do you think that government schools fall into the category of voluntary trade? Uh, hmm. Well, yes, because they agree to the social contract and the school is funded by taxes, so yes. Oh, well, no, not quite, though, because the parents don't agree, otherwise they wouldn't need to be taxed, right? Like if I say I want to go on a road trip with some guy, if he's sitting on the seat beside me, that's one thing. If he's tied up in the trunk, <laughs> that's quite another thing, right? I can't say, well, he's on the road trip because he's in the car with me when he's in the trunk uh, tied with a good strong set of cables. So the parents have to be taxed in order for the school to to operate. They're not there voluntarily. And of course, a lot of parents want school choice, right? They, they're desperate for, waiting for Superman movie and other movies and so on, right? They're desperate for school choice, but they don't have it and they can't get it. And so um, if, you know, maybe the parents got a voucher and they could take the voucher wherever they wanted, but they have to send their kids to the closest school. They have to pay for the school, whether they have kids or not, or whether their kids are doing well there or not. They can't transfer their kids to a better school. They can't get bad teachers fired. There's a whole big giant union and it's all protected by the state. I don't think we can say that that's really in the same category as going to a movie where you don't have to force to pay for it and, and you can go voluntarily and you can leave if you don't like it in the 20 minutes you get your money back. It not, it's not quite in the same category. Is that a fair point to put to make? Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a fair point. Excellent. Sorry, I was just shocked at you playing a lefty who said that's a fair point. But good, so I, I, good. No, I appreciate <laughs> Look, that's good because this will keep the conversation moving. Your conversations may not match the mileage of this conversation. Yet. <laughs> but um, so, you know, we have a situation and, and certainly the kids. I don't know what you thought about school, but, uh, uh, you know, I was uh, – <laughs> I was like a, uh, you know, a, a panda uh, wrapped up in bubble wrap. I was just trying to claw my way out as quickly as, as possible. I even took summer school so I could get out one semester early uh, to go out into the real world and, and get a job and all that. So the kids, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that the kids 
at least according to the Alice Cooper song, the kids don't want to be there. Uh, oh, Pink Floyd too. But um, the kids don't really want to be there. Uh, the parents are forced to pay. The parents are forced to send their kids there. There's really not a choice. There's no competition to to figure out better ways of teaching or having better teachers. So that may have something to do with the fact that after 12 years, like, can you imagine? Can you imagine? I'm your guitar teacher for 12 years. And after 12 years of teaching you guitar, you can't play a song. <laughs> like, I think we can safely say not optimum guitar teaching, right? And not the the, best, of course, no. the teachers don't make any money whether or not you, like, if, if, if you're economically productive in a free market environment, you, you, you'd want to send your kids to the school where they got an education that made them prepared for having some economic value as an adult, right? Not right. That it just teach them a trade and not even anything else, but you know, critical thinking and, and reasoning skills, debating skills, negotiation skills, how to start a business, you know, all the things, law, economics, and all the things that would really help out when it came to um, uh, getting out into the marketplace and so on. You'd probably want to send, like if you had the choice as a parent, I think it's fair to say you'd want to send your kids to a school where they had some capacity to earn a decent living when they got out, as opposed to one where, you know, it seems like they can barely even read or fill out a job application. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah. Right. So if, if parents as a whole would want schools where their kids were enthusiastic to go, where they learned really useful things and they graduated ready to step into a decent job, but none of that exists then I think it's fair to say that the schools don't really reflect what the parents want. Right. Right? Now, way back in the day, schools used to be responsive to parents because schools used to compete with the, each other to, to get the kids. And they tried to make it efficient, and, and they tried to make it fast, and they tried to make it valuable. And the literacy rate was very high, like 96, 97, 98%, far higher than it is now, 150 years later, that the governments have taken over the schools. And my sort of case or my argument is that if you look where there's the most competition, so where do you think a huge amount of competition is occurring in parts of the economy that you know? Hmm. I'd say technology, like the tech industry, is pretty competitive at the moment. Right. Right. Now, the tech industry is incredibly competitive. Like, it seems like I remember when malls used to be something other than cell phone stores and <laughs> cell phone kiosks. And now it's just like wild. I go to the, I haven't been to a mall for a while, but I went to a mall and it's just like, okay, you can go from this place to this place to this place to this place. And there's like three shoe stores and 9,000 cell phone stores. So yeah, there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of new features and there's this endless rows of cell phones and you don't have to pick up even one of them, right? Right. God help me, podcasts. So goddamn competitive and make your head spin. <laughs> and I mean, that's great for me. I like, I like, I thrive in that environment. But, you know, online media, I mean, how many people want you to come to their YouTube channel? Uh, millions. Right. Now, I know for a fact that, that just to break the role play for a moment, I just know from, from your uh, introductory uh, email span that you're mostly subscribed to Asian makeup channels, but we'll just jump back in afterwards. I just wanted to share that with the audience, um, which is why I'm really, really disappointed we don't have video for this, but, uh, but that's all right. We'll survive. But um, so, so here's an environment where you don't have to buy anything. The government's not really running anything. 
And there's a huge amount of innovation and they really want to get your business and they really produce some cool stuff. Wouldn't it be incredible if educating children was subject to the same kind of pressures for excellence and service and innovation and effectiveness and as the cell phone industry, you know, you could argue that the future of civilization, which is dependent on the education of children, is just a little bit more important than whether your cell phone has Gorilla Glass 4 or 5 on it. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's sort of an argument that I would make about the free market and what stands in the way of more innovation in education, do you think? Uh, uh, it would have to be, um, I guess the unions and government regulation that keep uh, teachers, yeah, bad teachers in the in their position, and it keeps the schools stagnant, and they can't grow and learn new things because there, there are so many barriers and red tape between them and success. Well, I, I think that's very astute, and I think that's uh, that's bang on. I think that there is, you know, if, if you don't get rewarded for succeeding, and you don't get penalized for failing, it's really tough to get motivated. Um, like I remember when I was a kid, maybe this happened to you too, but when I was a kid, every now and then some bored science teacher would put on a movie and the first question everyone would ask is, is this going to be on the test? Which <laughs> is another way of saying, do I have to bother listening? <laughs> or can I just right. do my book or pass notes or text or whatever, right? And um, so I think reward for success versus penalization for failure is pretty important. And it's kind of funny in the school system. And by funny, I mean heartbreakingly and shatteringly tragic. But it's kind of funny that kids get penalized for failure and rewarded for success, but teachers don't. Because right. kids got to pass the test or they fail. And back when I was a kid, you might lose a whole grade or whatever, right? You'd go stay back and be the guy in grade four with the hair on the back of his fingers or whatever, right? And so the teachers want to inflict this reward and punishment methodology on the children, but they don't want to be subject to it themselves, right? Which right. is a little hypocritical to, to put it mildly. But um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so these are just, you know, so the Republicans, you know, whatever their faults are, and Lord knows they have a lot, do mm -hmm. seem to be a little bit more keen on things like homeschooling, unschooling, school choice, you know, that kind of stuff. There is something to be said for that, whereas the Democrats kind of got the strangle grip on the educational system through forced union dues and all that. It was, again, not voluntary. Not only did the, right. the parents not they are forced to pay for the school, but the um, uh, even the union members are often forced to pay for political activities that they may or may not agree with. So um, as far as you know, free market goes, I totally get this like shadowy corporation exploiting brown people and so on. That's a topic for another time, but just in terms of voluntary trade, I think that there's a case to be made that it would be really cool for kids if there was the kind of innovation in schools that we see in cell phones. And, you know, I think it, you know, and, and interestingly enough, if, if schools are more interesting, they'd spend less time with their cell phones. So, you know, <laughs> it would actually shift really, really nicely. So that's kind of an argument that I would try and make with a bit of a lefty, uh, just to make that case. Uh, and, and I would do that in particular with a younger person, especially if you're talking about school, you know, you're a young man and, and everybody's still got that facial twitch PTSD from government education. So it's a bit more vivid <laughs> for uh, people of more your age, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that work for you? I mean, you were very, very, you were a very nice lefty and, and I appreciate that, but is that a way that would be helpful? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to be a lot more mild than, um, <laughs> than most of the people I'd be engaging, but I, I guess I could see the, 
uh, the, the arguments you're using there. Yeah, and you want to make sure that you're using a phrase that doesn't emotionally trigger people, right? So if he thinks, like if he thinks oh, you're pre free market, you're pro-free market, therefore you're in favor of shadowy corporations oppressing brown people, you can't win that. You know what I mean? It's like, let me redefine the word Nazi to mean angel. <laughs> and let's yeah. just talk about Nazism. So you have to figure out what the term means for them and then find a more emotionally neutral term that allows them to think without volatility, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, how how do you how do you make it past like this happens i oh this happens to me a lot because um i guess because i am african american and i'm you know conservative in a in a a very liberal uh space um i have been called a uncle tom and a self hater multiple times how, how would you i i don't i'm kind of laughing right now cuz it it kind of hurts but how would you go or give me advice on how to, I guess, move the conversation beyond that? Or do I just end it? Or Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, for me, debating is an act of respect and affection. And I try to avoid debates these days with people I don't respect. Because uh. especially, look, if you're, if you're debating publicly, go for the throat. <laughs> Right, because listen, Uncle Tom is an incredibly destructive term, obviously applied to black people. Um, I, I was going to say a racist term, but it kind of is because Uncle Tom, to me, translates to race traitor. Like th these are the interests of black people and you're kowtowing to white people or you're kowtowing to the, yeah. to the political power structures to be, you're becoming the token uh, Sambo, you're becoming the token Uncle Tom so to allow white people to get away with more racism by pretending to agree. Like it's kind of like a race traitor term. Is that too strong a way of putting it or is that sort of in the ballpark? I, I would definitely say that's in the ballpark because that's definitely how it is used. It uses this like, I guess this this, uh, I guess, cudgel to beat you with when, you know, oh, you're, you're not like us, so you must be, you must have been corrupted by them. And it's, it's definitely this sort of like traitor mentality. Right. So if I, I wouldn't debate someone privately like that, but if it was a public environment, I'd pull the how dare you card. How dare you? How dare you imply that in order to be black, I have to think a certain way. You complain about racism from other groups. In other words, you complain that other people think that blacks think a certain way and all blacks have to think a certain way and all blacks have this mindset. And then the moment you come across a black person who thinks differently, you attack that person and say, you're not really a good black because you're not thinking like all the other blacks. Well, which is it? Do you want us, do you want everyone else to view blacks as individuals or do you want us all to think the same and then you're going to complain about racism? Pick one. Right. You're allowed to be black and not agree with being on the left. Being on the left is not the same as being black, and being black is not the same as being on the left. If all blacks have to think alike, I don't even know what to say about that thesis, you know? Right. I, I, I can be black, and I can be a conservative. And if that's not allowed, then you can't complain about other people prejudging blacks because you're prejudging blacks, whoever's calling you an Uncle Tom. Well, you're not a real black. You're not a good black unless you're right. serving your Democrat masters. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't think right. that's what freedom for blacks is supposed to be about. Yeah, that, that, that gets me, but, 
but when when you bring it up it's kind of like oh oh you don't understand like you're like uh, i unfortunately my my mother has done this to me too and so we were sitting at a um i was getting new glasses and i told the lady at the counter i was telling her what i was studying and it was you know political science and she goes my mom goes oh don't worry though he's a republican so he's not going to do anything for us and so i was just like whoa <laughs> i was like i i don't betray the black community as, as soon as i you know vote republican like well you know as a republican it seems likely to me that you might go out and start a business and i'm sure you wouldn't be averse to hiring a few brothers and sisters from your community so you might actually be doing a little bit more for those people than making sure that they get welfare right or you might be inspiring other blacks to take that particular path right like i mean a couple of months ago i had a conversation with a young black fellow i don't know if you heard it who was uh whose ambition was to become a doctor. And a lot of the people from his community were kind of fastening onto him saying, no, 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 go into politics so you can get us stuff. And it's like, I don't think that that's really going to be very inspiring or sustainable right. in the long run, given that math is math. Yeah, and that, yeah, you're right. <laughs> just the, the vitriol that you get attacked with and... Well, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, Ben. Let, let me explain to you the black experience once more. <laughs> sorry, about that. but but also, if you are not going to be a Democrat and and try and get more goodies for the black community, then that is going to break people's stereotypes, right? I mean, if 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 these people got their way, and by these people I don't mean blacks, I just mean these lefty. Uh, these lefties, if they got their way and all blacks said, well, we've got to go to the government to get free stuff, that would actually reinforce bigotry mm. on, on the part of other people. Because if someone's just taken out of the pot and not putting into the pot or, or some group, all of them say, well, we're just taking out. We, you know, we eat the pie. We don't make the pie. At some point, the people who actually make the pie are going to get kind of resentful. It's the old, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. The fact that you're going to go out there in the world as a conservative and not trying to use political machinations to get your community extra goodies, that's great because then people are going to meet you and you say, oh, this is great. This goes against, you know, maybe some of my preconceptions about lefty uh, blacks and so on. So you're going to help break stereotypes that if they're allowed to develop because of consistency in the black community could actually turn out to be somewhat negative. Uh, because, you know, if, if they get their way and all blacks are Democrats and all have the same political perspectives, well, then guess what? It's okay to judge blacks collectively, which I don't want right. to have to do. So thank you for breaking the mold. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> it is how you roll, if you don't mind me putting it that way. <laughs> oh. Nothing more funny than listening to me trying to hood it up a little. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, it's you fun. agree? I'm just no, kidding. it's <laughs> don't make me break out my Mike Brown rap. I'm I've got it memorized. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just I was just choking on laughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh, yeah, that was a um, it's just a really big hurdle. Uh, uh I guess engaging in conversations with because I, I personally I, I agree with your stance on um, debate is a sign of respect and I I'm used to any other topic I can normally debate people without it turning into 
you know, you're a traitor. And I really appreciate the, um, the reassurance that, you know, I'm, I'm breaking a mold and that, um, I shouldn't be ashamed for who I am and whatnot. Well, just you ask the person, am I allowed to be black and have different opinions <laughs> or must I conform to what you think because I'm black? In other words, am I allowed to be black and think for myself? If not, then don't blame people for categorizing blacks as thinking a certain way. And if so, then don't attack me for uh, being like, don't say I'm somehow not a good black because I hold different perspectives from you. The whole point is to individualize, right? To not be conformist in this way. Definitely. All right. Will you let us know how it goes? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And if, if you do have someone who, you know, is, is uh, real keen on debating lefty stuff, you know, bring them on the show. I'd love to have a chat. All right. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks, Ben. I, I appreciate it. And uh, keep us posted, all right? All right. Sure thing. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. All right. Up next is Tim. Tim wrote in and said, I'm a student, a Marine Corps veteran, a musician, and a teacher of music, and a conservative that is attending university in a very liberal area. I try to keep an open mind and understand that my opinions are subject to change with new evidence. Given the indoctrination in American universities today, how can someone like me differentiate between an instructor, particularly one I may have a great deal of respect for, pushing a narrative, and something I should take under genuine consideration when my views or beliefs are challenged? And that's from Tim. Hello, Tim. How are you doing tonight? Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. Um, uh, do you no, go ahead. I was just going to say, before we begin, I'd like to thank Michael for uh, his help with me so far in the communication we've had, as well as all the stuff he does behind the scenes. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Mike is a, is a living god, uh, as, as far oh, as that stuff goes. And uh, the, the only reason I have time to think about what I'm doing uh, and talk about it with Mike is because Mike takes so many bullets for my time that I can't even tell you. So uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate everything that Mike does. Uh, so thanks. Uh, thanks for that, that feedback. So um, did you, do you mind uh, telling me what area you're studying in? Uh, I am a music major. Uh, I'm a jazz guitar performance major. So, ex-Army hipstra, is that how we should refer to you for the remainder of this conversation? Uh, Ex-Marine Corps, by the way. Ex-Marine uh, Corps. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to confuse my categories. Ex-Marine Corps, current hipster. Do you have a soul patch? Just give me a visualization here. I have about a 5 o'clock shadow going on, but I still rock the high and tight. You still rock the what? The high and tight haircut. Oh, okay. So you've got that full on Tom Skerritt helicopter landing pad. <laughs> Just put me in Vietnam. Okay. I got it. Got it. <laughs> um, now, is the university, you say liberal area, is the university pretty liberal? I mean, I got to think California plus the arts. Is it California? It is, yes. Yeah, California plus arts plus jazz. You know, I got to think that that's about <laughs> as left as you can get before becoming right again. Sure. <laughs> yes, it's three lefts right there. Just waiting right, on the right. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty liberal area, and uh, I, I know it's. I get many a strange looks when I describe myself as I did in the beginning, which which Michael so wonderfully read. Uh, yeah, I'm a Marine Corps veteran. I, you know, I, I'm a teacher. I also study music, and I'm a music. And they're just like, what? The what? You know, so it's uh, it's pretty interesting. But um, so you're going to beat me to death with a clarinet? Is that what's going to happen next? <laughs> a lot we'll of probably have that thought. Okay. All right. Um, so, is your sort of question around teachers that you have? 
yes, more, more rather. And if I can, I'll provide a little background for the motivation behind the question. Please do. So uh, there's an instructor that I had uh, several years ago when I first started school who became somewhat of a mentor to me, uh, musically, of course. And as our relationship went on, he, he would share, you know, more of his, you know, political views, not in, in a using his podium as a pulpit kind of way, which was nice. But but I learned several things about him, him being, you know, very liberal. When I came up to this area, it was, I, I, you know, found a similar mentor. And this, this individual does tend to take class time to preach about certain, you know, beliefs that he has. So... I look at the situation and I go, well, I don't agree with this. You know, like I, I don't see what you're saying as as something that is valuable for class, you know, music environment or not. Um, but I also, you know, more rather disagree. But then I step back and I realize, well, I'm here to learn something. So if I sit here and close my mind to this person, you know, this instructor who is charged with teaching me more or less, uh, then what am I going to come out as? Am I going to come out the same person, which is certainly not the goal, right? So it's uh, it, it's a bit of a, a, a weird personal battle in my brain that I'll sit there and listen to someone who I respect spout off bullcrap, essentially, if I can say it as such. Right. No, and this it's a great question. And um, I, I mean, I, I struggled with that same question uh, when I was about your age uh, in, in school as well. And I don't have a perfect answer, but I'll give you a couple of things that, that helped me. So uh, I took a course called The Rise of Capitalism and the Socialist Response taught by a guy, I think he was on the left, <laughs> to, put it, to put it as mildly as possible. And we had a lot of debates. And w what I struggled to sort of understand was every perspective makes sense if you accept certain premises, right? So if you accept certain principles at the beginning, everything kind of flows from that. So one of the challenges can be to try and figure out what are the principles at the root of the person's perspective that like dominoes, ends up with them having this perspective. Now, if you know the principles at the root of other people's thinking, you are almost immune from infection from their perspectives. You can internalize those perspectives. You can argue devil's advocate their position because you know the principles at the very beginning. If you start midstream without knowing the principles at the beginning, it's much more likely that you're going to get infected with their perspective. But if you know the principles at the beginning, then um, it makes a lot more sense what they're doing. So, for instance, I mean, this is very, very brief, but if, you know, lefties have this general perception that everyone is equal because there are selected. So right. <laughs> size and strength of a rabbit doesn't really matter, whereas in foxes, in wolves and so on, it, it does. So everyone's kind of equal. Nobody's really better than anyone else. Nobody's really worse than anyone else. Therefore, inequality must result from injustice. So if you, if you sort of understand this biological perspective that everyone's equal, and by that I mean, I don't just mean like uh, IQ or anything like that, and ethnicity, everyone's equal. In other words, women are just as dedicated and available for working as men are because children don't exist and pregnancy doesn't exist and breastfeeding doesn't exist. Like, so if everyone is equal, then all discrepancies 
in outcomes must be due to some sort of injustice in the world. Because everyone's equal, the only way that the capitalist becomes rich is by exploiting the workers. And, oh, you're a young guy, but there's an old Eddie Murphy movie uh, with Dan Aykroyd called Trading Places. Eddie Murphy plays this guy who's homeless. And he's just given this chance and he becomes this fantastic stock trader. I have seen that, yeah. Oh, you have seen it? Okay. So this is that's a basic lefty movie, and it's no accident, of course, that uh, I think it was... Um, oh, don't even get me started on artists talking about Donald Trump. Oh, I used to <laughs> like it. Anyway, uh, and not because, you know, I'm so pro-Donald Trump. It's just a bad arguments, <laughs> no right. arguments and so on. I think Dan Aykroyd just came out about it. So there's this perspective. It's like, well, the only reason that Eddie Murphy is is like this homeless guy rather than having a corner office is just bad luck or racism or injustice or whatever. And that is really important. And and you see Dan Aykroyd go from the top to the bottom. You see Eddie Murphy go from the bottom to the top. And you see this kind of repeated over and over again in, in movies all the time, which is everything's environment. There's no fundamental difference between people. And if you give the homeless guy the opportunity, then he'll be just like the guy who went through the Harvard Business School or Wharton or whatever it is, right? right? So if you take this perspective that everyone's the same, then all the consequences flow from there. And so if you if you say, okay, well, if I were to believe that everyone was the same, men and women, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Jew, it doesn't matter. Everyone's the same. What would flow from that if I genuinely believed that? Well, generally, lefty perspectives would flow from that. And so also what flows from that is kind of a contempt for the poor. Because if everyone's the same, then poor people are making bad decisions right. incomprehensibly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everyone's the same. Okay. So if if Eddie Murphy has the capacity to be this fantastic stock trader, why isn't he? Why isn't he? Why is he on a street corner pretending to have no legs, right? Right. Because he's really making bad decisions, right? Whereas if we say, okay, well, homeless people, you know, very often have unbelievably horrifyingly bad childhoods, have probably made some bad decisions, partly as a result of free will and partly as a result of their childhoods and maybe got involved in drugs or maybe got involved in criminality or prostitution and sealed themselves off from a more stable future and then have probably ended up in some seriously mentally ill state later on in life. So, you know, probably not the smartest people to begin with, probably had really bad childhoods, probably made some really bad decisions, it's a whole combination of things, but partly choice and partly environment. And the solution for that is better parenting, right? So that people have better childhoods and therefore make better decisions and have better outcomes. And so, whereas of course, if everyone's equal, then it's just bad luck, and, and but, but at the same time, if everyone's equal, then why are some people rich and some people poor? There's this contempt for the poor. Well, if you could just be, this is why they want to put them, they, they, why they want to shoulder aside the free will of the poor and impose other things on them. Like you poor people are too stupid to send your kids to school. So we're going to have government education for you. You poor people are too stupid to save for your own retirement. Therefore, we're going to have government pensions. You poor people are too stupid to take care of your own health. Therefore, we're going to have Obamacare. You poor people are too stupid, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever, right? You, you don't understand the value of roads, so we've got to tax you for roads or whatever, right? So if you believe everyone's the same, you have this 
giant intellectual problem, which is if everyone's the same, why are outcomes so vastly different? And, uh, you know, it, it, when it's singers, it's easy, right? <laughs> go, go to karaoke and like one, one person out of 10 is decent. Mm-hmm. Say, why, why isn't this caterwauling guy who sounds like he just, you know, kicked over a, a lamp and got shocked with the filaments? Why isn't he a singer? Because he's not good at because <laughs> he's not good at singing. It's not like he's and the good singer didn't steal his voice. Right. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, that bastard. He, he, he took he took my lovely operatic voice and replaced it with this squawky, froggy voice box from hell. Uh, that's not what happened. We sort of all understand that because there's a physical component to singing. You need to have the instrument. You know, Freddie Mercury, a great singer, never took a singing lesson, screwed up his voice with noise, with nodes and smoking and strain, but nonetheless, right? Um, so we all understand that with certain physical characteristics, you know, like to be a supermodel, you need a particular spaghetti leg body type, uh, which is both lean and... Um, uh, well, it's 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 thin, but not um, formless, right? And it's a particular kind of body type that clothes hang well on. So, and you have to have the cheekbones and the look and all that. And it's the way it is. So, if you you go to I don't know um, uh, some woman uh, who's not that way inclined physically, well, why aren't you a supermodel? It's like, well, not because the supermodel stole my thinness or something my cheekbones, right? It's just the way it is. So, uh, but but for the brain, it's different and. I think the reason why leftism, I think, and femininity kind of go hand in hand in that way is because women have a tough time being honest with how bad people are. You know, women want to be very encouraging and very positive and don't like to hurt people's feelings, which is why, you know, back in the day with um, uh, American Idol, uh, Simon Cowell was like the grumpy uncle who seemed to be passing a kidney stone while giving particularly harsh criticisms, which were actually cost-friendly and positive in that they help people stop wasting their time with things they're not good at. Uh, whereas, you know, Paula Abdul and, you know, it's just a little less you know, nicer and didn't want to say bad things and so on. And so it's tough, you know, for moms to say to their pride and joys and the women and the, the boys and girls, they, they grew in their bellies and breastfed to say, sorry, you're terrible. <laughs> you're just not, you're not good at this. You just suck. Uh, or however you, you do it. Right. And I get that, you know, you your kids are enthusiastic about various things and, and maybe they're good at them and, and maybe they're not, you know, and, and even if they're good at them, you don't want to say they're too good at them. Otherwise they'll stop trying and think they're already perfect and all that. Right. So, um, it is hard for women in particular to say you're bad, which is why you've got this very fragile generation as more and more female teachers are taking over education. You've got this very fragile generation that hasn't been toughened up by people saying, you suck, <laughs> you know I mean, in, in, in that way. And less competitive sports and so on. Because even if your parents, if your parents don't tell you you suck at hockey, but you suck at hockey and nobody wants to play with you, if your mom won't tell you that you're a slow ass runner, uh, but nobody wants you on their running team, uh, at least you get that kind of feedback from a peer standpoint. But of course that's been hammered out because you know, women have a tough time seeing people sad and disappointed, whereas um, men recognize, I think, that in general as a necessary part of reality feedback. <laughs> so um, so I think if you get those initial perspectives and realize where the dominoes fall, then it's a lot easier to absorb other people's arguments and even be able to reproduce them and not be harmed by them. You know, it is an essential component of an educated person to be able to entertain and argue for an idea you disagree with, because it means that you're able to empathize with somebody else's perspective. And, you know, if I were R-selected and um, full of um, 
cowardice and resentment or whatever, then, you know, I would be that way inclined as well, that everyone's equal and the only inequalities come from injustice uh, or rank stupidity. So I'd have both a desire to fight for the poor and a desire to hold them in near infinite contempt for their bad decisions. So it's kind of a paradox, which explains why it's so hard to end the welfare state. Uh, and why the leftists disrespect the poor so much while they claim to to fight for them. And um, so does, does that help at all? Like if you get the initial principles, after that you can follow the beliefs without harm to yourself. I, yeah, it certainly does. And I think that, that uh, I think you, you, you probably, uh, I don't know if it was uh, on purpose or not, but I believe, I believe you quoted the, the, the Aristotle in there where you were just like, it take, it's kind of the, the mark of a wise man to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and, and uh, that parallel you drew between the singer, uh, the singer, you know, who's who's incredibly good, and the singer who's incredibly bad. Uh, that you know, the bad singer, or rather, the good singer, did not steal the, you know what I mean, <laughs> the other way around. And yeah, I think that's yeah. a great parallel for how you know people will say like, oh, the white man stole this from the black community. It's like, no, that's not how that works. You know, so it's just as a you know. The, the musician, the musical kind of parallel is kind of nice there. I kind of like that. But, um, but anyway, I thought yeah. I, I, I try to tailor make tailor make the metaphors just for the listeners. So I'm glad that one helped. It worked out great. It totally drove a point home there. So, but I definitely understand that. Now, when it comes down to somebody like I, I do respect, for instance, and I do spend a lot of time with, I can definitely see what you're saying with uh, go in there and, and understand where it's rooted. But um, and I do have here before me at the textbooks that I had from a quote unquote contemporary sexuality class, which was basically a feminist indoctrination class uh, that is a required general ed. And that was going to be the second part of my question is that then when I go into a a uh, a classroom, which I do not know the teacher and I'm not, you know, I'm taking everything at face value. And again, with the mindset that I'm here to learn something, I'm here to be educated. I'm here to ultimately make myself better, but through the mechanisms that they provide at the university, um, that is another thing of how to look at that and say, oh, wait, that, that doesn't sound quite right. Or take this quote unquote authority, uh, that is at the podium at the top telling me these things. And it's a similar question of how do I rationalize through, wait, that doesn't sound quite right, or I should take what they're saying as fact. Well, what is the uh, what are the basic principles behind the feminist approach in that class? Well, I actually have a few uh, pages marked here with small little quotes, of, and I could read directly from the textbook to you if you'd like. Sure. So, first one is talking about gender, and it says, for many people, the terms gender and sex are interchangeable. Western culture has come to view gender as a binary concept with two rigidly fixed options, male or female. A child is born, a quick glance between the legs determines the gender uh, label. That, that All right, hang on. See, already we, yeah. have, we have a problem. And this is an Western culture has come to believe. Yes, has come well, to believe. Well, no, no. I mean, Western culture looks at a penis versus a vagina. It doesn't sort of come to believe, you know? Right. It, 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 you look and you see. Right. Which is not yeah, to yeah. say that there are only two genders as far as all possible combinations, but it's not like it just, well, it's just mysteriously come to believe that, you know, it's just like, well, no, that's, that's what the empirical evidence is in the majority of cases. <laughs> then there's a particularly ridiculous statement here in uh, one of these pages that uh, says across history and across cultures, rich and powerful men have had more sex than those lower down in the social hierarchy. The most obstinately cruel way for men to control women's reproduction is to rape her. The most plausible explanation. Okay, hang on, hang on. We got to take these one at a time. So, throughout history, rich men have had more sex than poor men. 
Yes, that is the general statement, of uh, the general sentence of the first statement. So what that means is that women are attracted to rich men. I would assume so. Okay. So why, why not say uh, throughout history, women have been sexually attracted to rich men? Because that does not fit the narrative that they're trying to push. Well, that, that gives women agency. <laughs> right. And, and you don't want to give women agency, apparently, if you're this kind of feminist. Anyway, go on. Uh, then the, the probably most ridiculous at the end of the statement, the most plausible explanation of the fact that about one in 200 men on this campus, I suppose this is written by a master's student, uh, carry the same chromosome in that they are all descendants of Kangas Khan. Right. right. I, I think that's an incredibly ludicrous statement to be in a textbook that somehow because there is a certain genetic that they're arguing in here, a genetic quality that they're related to Kangas Khan, the conqueror. You know, no, no, I get that. And of course, the challenge that feminists would have in this situation is they're saying that rape may be genetic. But since African-Americans rape a lot more than, say, Asians, they're saying that African-Americans propensity for rape is genetic. Yeah, right. That's a, I, that's a challenging thesis to get across in a modern campus. <laughs> I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that right. that would be the logical conclusion. Sure, sure. And, and then I have one more here. It says uh, an expert in sexual studies and the name. Uh, Denial of institutional and social equality and participation to sexual minorities occurs in such areas as education, parental rights, healthcare, labor markets, housing, taxing, pensions, and insurance, partner beliefs, political representation, and immigration laws, to name only some of the major terrains. So the fact that there are fewer men in higher education in America these days than women is something that needs to be fixed, right? Evidently. And as a matter of fact, I do also have the numbers for the... Uh, my school, as a matter of fact, of, of the percentages of men versus women and all the different uh, uh, demographics thereof, which kind of would support exactly what you just said. Right. right. And then the fact, of course, you know, the problem is that not enough women get killed in the line of, of duty in jobs, right? Um, certainly in the military, I know it's it's much lower than, than male casualties. But, you know, workplace, uh, was it 5,000 uh, people um, die uh, in job-related injuries every year in America, and 90% of them are men. Uh, right. So clearly, um, we need to set up more trap doors in the secretarial pool or whatever, right? Because, uh, um, you know, need to release more tigers into the model's den <laughs> because uh, it's, you know, you've got to, got to get that number up, right? Uh, yeah, 90% is too damn high. We need equality, damn it. And wasn't there something where there's this um, uh, runner in the Olympics who uh, is um, kind of male but is competing in the female I'm running sure – Race and, and that's a big problem, apparently, because, you know, the, the, the sort of male-ish uh, female runner is, is, um, is winning like crazy. <laughs> Everyone's saying, well, that's unfair. And it's like, no, that's equality. Yeah. yeah. And All then, right, so keep going. Sure. And now I have the workbook. That was our study workbook. Uh, and I have so that, wait, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Sure. I just said keep going. I apologize. Um, oh. Any footnotes, any facts, any citations, any data, or is all just a bunch of like uh, – here are some sentences. At the end of some of the chapters, there are citations, but they're mostly from the author. So what this textbook basically is, the instructor combined her own research along with some of her colleagues, compiled it into a, into a textbook, and then right. put that on right. shape. And right. so- And uh, as, as you talked about the fact that um, women have not been drafted throughout human history, mm -hmm. no, and that's I, very I unequal. I didn't read that anywhere, no. Yeah, has it ever talked about the fact that in most conflicts, um, if if uh, one tribe conquers another, the males are put to death, but the women are kept alive? Oh, I know for a fact that's not in there. I would have highlighted that. Right. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that we, uh, I think we got a sense of where this is going. Because I mean, hey like, up, guilty man. Yeah, I, I hear a lot about uh, on on shows like yours and you know other YouTubers that that you know yes, this is indoctrination in in you know our universities, etc. I have a physical textbook here to kind of lend credence to that. Just you know, that's exactly. why. I say. It's nice to know I have to adjust my nads at the moment. I hear this kind of text and my Audi becomes an innie. So uh, it's actually kind of a relief not to have the castanets banging up against me. But uh, all right. Uh, did you want to go on with a little more? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll read from one of the uh, study questions. There's two of them I have here. The first is, um, in today's society, are job opportunities and wages equal for men and women? Uh, my answer was, uh, yes, men and women make different choices and thus go in different paying fields. And that was oh, no, 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 they're not equal. You, you go, go try and uh, become a kindergarten teacher as a man. <laughs> okay. No, seriously, or, or go become a daycare teacher as a man. Uh, sure. There are lots of female-dominated industries um, right. where you're often not welcome uh, as a man. So, uh, no, uh, definitely. And I'm sure there are others as well, but... Uh, uh, that's not particularly the case. And of course, um, when it comes to affirmative action hiring, uh, I was just reading um, Scott Adams' uh, great book um, that he uh, he just put out, um, How to Fail at Almost Everything, uh, which um, I did an interview with him, and we'll, we'll put that out later. But um, he was saying that he hit the diversity ceiling in his career because the word came down from on high, stop promoting white men. Oh, wow. Because, you know, we are... We have too many white men in senior positions, so stop promoting white men. And um, there are, of course, uh, job opportunities that are posted in various places where they explicitly say white men need not apply. Uh, or we're looking for members of diverse female, whatever it is, like however they phrase it. So, yeah, for sure, when it comes to diversity uh, hires, uh, men, white men, men are at a, not just a slight disadvantage, but are generally completely excluded from the opportunity so uh yeah i can uh, i can see now of course that's not equal okay <laughs> uh then the second question that i have here that i highlighted that was Wait, also one more one more do you mind very quickly please um so once i was so desperate for work i applied for uh, a job in a um a woman's clothing store herbert a yes b um <laughs> Still needed the job. Right. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and it was, they, they, you know, it was a woman I actually kind of knew from high school. And she was, you know, she took the application. But, you know, I wasn't really expecting a, uh, a callback. So, yeah, but I did. I applied uh, uh, at the now vanished Don Mills Mall uh, to get a job in a woman's clothing store. And um, I had... No particular illusions about my higher ability, but, <laughs> you know, it wasn't going to get that job. And lo and behold. No, but so go on with the bookbook. Book. Oh, okay. I see. All right. Uh, anywho, the last, the last, the second question here that I did get marked wrong is it says name several societies slash countries that are currently very patriarchal. Uh, I put Iraq, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Iran. And that was marked incorrect. What? What? Yeah. Among this is again a whole huge workbook. I just selected some of the more interesting. Ones. No, no, but what? 
What was the reason by which this was marked incorrect? I was not given one because it was graded by uh, the instructors, uh, uh, what do you call them, teacher's aides. So it wasn't, I didn't, you know, figure this out until my train ride home and I was looking through it and I went, what? So, um, <laughs> so I made a mental note to myself, if I see this on a test for the sake of passing, which is a whole nother issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, itself, yeah. Um, <laughs> for the sake of passing, I'm going to mark what I know is the wrong answer that they're considering to be the correct answer. So, um, right. But anyway, right. like I just wanted to kind of provide some some actual, you know, you know, real life, real time uh, insight into so a lot of these claims that I've heard that, like I said, yourself and many others have made about. No, it's true. Listen, if you if you wrap yourself in white uh, and you're standing on sand, it's a magical shield against patriarchy rays. It's it's incredible. But sorry, go on. And there are chap. There's a whole chapter with several sections dedicated to patriarchy in there, uh, and this was a prerequisite course for the uh, social justice an education master's degree uh, that I took as a general ed because it ticked all different boxes. And the, the way this, this master's degree is described in its first sentence is a major component of this program is social activism, Yep. which lends credence once again to a lot of the claims that I've been hearing made. And I just wanted to, again, provide, you know, uh, credence to those claims. Yeah, no, they don't want to be market facing. Clearly, right? I mean, and and the, even the name of the degree is something that you see that on someone's resume. And if you're a social justice warrior, you know that you can hire them and they're not going to disturb any of your ideology, right? There's a lot of sort of for this, these dog whistles that go out uh, for, for these kinds of courses. Uh, but the fact that it's mandatory um, and the fact that a clear answer about patriarchal societies is marked wrong, <laughs> well, you know... Um, you know, what, what can I tell you? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Uh, when I was, uh, I guess, in my mid-teens, I had sort of my first my first girlfriend. And uh, she came over to my house, and uh, I made her something to eat. But there was never anything to eat at my house. Uh, hung around a lot of friends' places. <laughs> Are oh, you no, guys going to eat soon? So, uh, <laughs> and so I gave her, you know, some food that I had. And the only other thing that I had was an old sandwich I'd put in the fridge to save for later. And I'm sitting across from this woman, the girl. She was a girl. I guess we are boy and girl, right? It was a very innocent uh, relationship. So I was sitting across from this girl and chatting away. And I bite into my sandwich and I realize it's moldy. Mm. And what did I do? Well, I'm young. I want to impress her. I don't want to say I have moldy food in the house. What do I do? Eat it. I eat it, baby. I'm just, I'm, I'm like Louis Pasteur experimenting on myself and I have never been sick ever since now. So, so I, I just, you know, smile and, and chat away and, and chow down on the furry baloney. And that sounds like rude, but it's not. Um, and, uh, cause you know, it's like, wow, it'd be really nice if I could hold her hand later and I don't want to spoil the moment by spitting this across her face. <laughs> like take a big bite. <laughs> What the hell is this? This thing has got tentacles coming out of it. What? I don't want to put this in my mouth. So yeah, you know, you you have the goal of holding the girl's hand, so you'll mow down on the basically the sandwich that's biting you back because it's evolved. And so it's okay. It only had molars, not incisors, so I was able to choke it down. Oh, there you go. So you know, you you got to eat the sandwich to get the the benefit, and um, yeah. I can I can regurgitate propaganda with the best of them, and if that's what's necessary, you know, to to gain my freedom, where do I need to sign? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, oh, and then to answer your question that you had earlier about how, you know, how liberal is the area, there are 29,465 students uh, on the campus. And when I went to the Young Republicans meeting, there were nine of us. And probably eight of them were spies. That's what <laughs> I had I to find out exactly when the Klan rally was planned. I really thought that at first. When I first found out that, that there was a Republican, you know, student union or whatever it was on campus, I emailed them. And that was one of my first thoughts. It's like, this is a trap. <laughs> right, right. It's going to be a trap door that's going to lead you to further indoctrination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia is not patriarchal because reasons. Saudi Arabia won't give us money for calling it patriarchal, so we don't bother. Anyway. So now that you've kind of had the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the look into what that class was kind of all about, uh, if, you know, I, I walk into a class like that and, you know, given that I've been trained since kindergarten to accept what the instructor says, um, there are certain things, of course, in this book that make sense. There are statistical things that have zero, at least from what I saw, zero leaning one way or the other. It was kind of nice. So, okay, cool. You know, this is, this is something that is, you know, just numbers based and it, there wasn't like an opinion made on it. So it's, it's not all bad. There's a, there's two or three pages that are okay. But, uh, um, how, how would I go in there and then be able to sit there and critically look at this, whatever this, this is being presented to me and just say kind of, Hmm, there's something fishy about this, especially if it's just you know, something that I'm, I don't know. Like if I have to go to a master's program one day, which I plan to do, and I take, you know, a certain course that I may think is benign, but it, turns out, you know, may be exactly like this, some sort of indoctrination. So how, 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 what are some, some tactics of, of listening that right. I can take? Say, hmm. I hope I made that. that question Tim, quick, quick question just before we go on. Sure. What's tougher, this or basic training? Um, I would say at the current stage of uh, this. Right. Cause at least in basic training, you, you get to throw up and keep going, right? This is like wrestling with your own you head. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, basic training, you know, at the end of it, you you don't want to leave. And I don't know if that's, you know, uh, uh, just because I enjoy structure and order in my life and everything is regimented or if it's their own form of indoctrination, which, you know, could be could be a possibility. No, but, but at no, least it's honest indoctrination, right? I mean, sure. they're, they're not, you know, they're not mocking you wrong for right answers. They're just like, you will obey. Anyway. Um, so. I've played uh, evil characters in my relatively brief acting career. Mm. And you really have to get into the mindset, right? You, you, you've got to be all Heath Ledger, you know, lock yourself in a hotel room and then become such a nasty guy that bad things seem to happen outside of the role. But, um, if you are going to play a bad guy, you have to kind of be in that mindset. You have to really get into the character. I mean, I'm not totally method, uh, as far as that goes, but um, you know, I'm I'm down with Stella Adler and that you know emotional memory stuff, and and try and find play ways in which you had negative thoughts or hostile thoughts or people you wish to do harm to, and just sort of do the flip. So you have to really get in, but it's a character, right? And you know, some people I remember reading about Val Kilmer when he was uh, playing Jim Morrison, you know, got himself into those. They actually found the original jeans, oh, leather pants that Jim Morrison had worn. Of course, they were a little skanky by this time, but he kind of stayed in character. Uh, throughout the filming, and I sort of understand that that's that's easier um, in in some ways. But um, you're playing a character called a guy who wants to graduate, yep. right? So you know, it, it, when I play uh, when I played an evil character, you know, I, I played Macbeth, who you know had pretty evil characteristics, like murdering the king in his sleep, and of course, murdering the dozens of innocent peasants that he did before that. But anyway, that's not really part of the whole equation. Or I played. Um, 
Gloucester, I think it was in in uh, King Lear, and I used my cane to gouge somebody's eyes out, and you know, like it was a really nasty, nasty character. I did play some good guys too, but you know, that was uh, you know because I have you know Joe Arian head. Um, people, I guess, felt <laughs> he's got a square jaw; he can be evil. But um, so I was just playing a character. Now, in this situation, you're playing a character who wants to graduate. And you have to play a role in order to graduate. You know, I don't have to be evil. I just have to play evil. And you don't have to believe it all. You just have to play someone who believes it in order to get what you want. Sure. But the dichotomy in that is I'm also there because I know I want to be better in some way. And that's just not the proficiency of my musical understanding and in my, in my instrument, but also on, on a personal level. There's a benefit of experience before me in the instructors and in my peers. And so as yes, I want to get the letter grade that tells me I'm good enough to hold this piece of paper that then qualifies me to get some sort of job. Sure, that's the ultimate goal. But on a personal level, it's it's I, I and maybe this just isn't what people look at college as anymore, but I also want to be better as a person. And, and you will be. No, no, that's perfectly um have you ever seen the movie Patton? Patton, yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> You're sure. an ex-Marine. Of course you've seen Patton. <laughs> right? Uh I'm gonna get the right I'm going to get the right quote here if it kills me. So let me see if I can. Uh... If I may correct you one more time, Stefan. Please. There is no such thing as an ex-Marine. Sorry. You're once absolutely a, right. Once Please a Marine, don't. always a Marine. Please don't hurt me. All right. Um, okay. For, some great quotes from Patton. Um, He's uh, now I want you to remember that no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. I just like that in particular. I do too. Sorry? I do too, and it's completely true. Right. And so um, uh, he was fighting desert war against Rommel, right? The, the German guy, right? Yep. And um, <laughs> I just I remember this because a friend of mine held up two beer bottles once and did this quote. Uh, Rommel, you magnificent bastard. I read your book. <laughs> right? Because Rommel wrote a book called Infantry Attacks. Uh, and um, Patton read Rommel's book and was able to defeat him in in battle because of that right makes sense rommel was a tank commander so why would he write about the infantry i i don't know i you're <laughs> the military guy so uh That's, well there's my question <laughs> right about his pistol grips they're ivory only a pimp from a cheap new orleans whorehouse would carry a pearl-handled pistol i don't think <laughs> so he's just it's a pretty good uh, uh a pretty good movie but um okay. so anyway um you, 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 if you want to fight people who you think are wrong, it doesn't hurt to be instructed by them, right? Oh, you find out where the weaknesses are. You find out where the principles are. Like, I spent a lot of time combating socialists, and uh, I kept doing it until I found those initial principles right. that I was talking about. Like, everyone's equal, and therefore all inequalities must come from injustice. Now, once you get that then you can go right to the root of the problem rather than batting around all of this, uh, this, this effects. You can get to the actual cause. So you are infiltrating. <laughs> You're a double agent, right? You're infiltrating, figuring out how these people think and what their perspectives are. And they do think and they have perspectives and they have particular principles. That is their starting point. And most people are like this. You know, most people are like this. I remember a friend of mine years ago when talking about my book, University Preferable Behavior. He said, what I love about this is 
most people just like they plant a flag somewhere and they say this these are my ethics you know whether that flag may be god or country or utilitarianism or pragmatism or whatever here plant the flag right and if you believe that that's where the flag should be then it makes sense to you and if you don't but you can't convince anyone who doesn't he said what i like about university preferable behavior is it's an argument for ethics that doesn't require that you plant a flag somewhere and um most people, they plant a flag and they think they're making perfect sense and this is where everyone who agrees with them starts from and they all agree. And then you, because you've planted your flag somewhere, you have to have everyone who agrees with you around you and you can't have people who disagree with you because it really destabilizes your foundational personality, right? The ba at the bottom of personality is ethics. And when you start messing around with ethics, people feel like you're driving them insane. Like it's literally feel like it's an assault on their personality. And so you are learning the foundational principles of this type of thinking. And, uh, you know, social justice warriors are damn bastards. I took your course, you know, something like that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I've had several former friends of mine, uh, including one teacher who I had, you know, and this is a Facebook thing and there I've gotten into, you know, little tussles back and forth and I never meant any malice and I assumed they didn't either, but lo and behold, come certain times or whatever, uh, I had been unfriended and, uh, and blocked. So I couldn't see whatever they were doing or whatever. And I just, that, that's just something that, that. I took certain pride in, you know what I mean? I was just like, that's awesome. In, in a sense. They, they ran away. They did. Right. And it's not even, that's a what you want in combat, right? In a sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's pretty, um, it's interesting because I, I never really got into the whole social justice warrior business until I moved up here. It wasn't prevalent where I was from before I was from, you know, a town in Southern California. Um, near Los Angeles. So, and it wasn't as prevalent down there, but, uh, when I got up here, it's just all the rage with the black lives matter and everything here. And it's like, there was one kid, one of my first few days of, of university, you know, first week I'm walking to the train to go home after my day. And, uh, you know, this, this guy comes up to me and he says, Hey, let me talk to you about black lives matter. I guess they had like a little kiosk set up. Uh, and I said, no, thanks. I've got to catch the train next day. Similar situation. I'm walking by same guys there. And he, I want to say whispers, but he did it loud enough for me to hear it. Oh, there's the racist guy. And, uh, and I looked really? at that. Yeah. And I looked at that and I kind of went, what in the world? Cause again, it, this kind of thing wasn't, you know, prevalent where I was from. So how in the world, and if I, you know, I probably would have stayed and talked to him if I didn't have to catch the train again. But, and then I went home and looked it up as you do the almighty Oracle of Google. And, um, and and found out all this crazy stuff about the social justice warriors and the you know the the far leftists and things, which eventually led me to your channel when I was looking for. I think I even typed in the untruth about Donald Trump because I was getting sick and tired of hearing all the you know accusations that were baseless for. for and and your video popped up, and that's how I got hooked on you. But anyhow, just uh, it, it was just a huge kind of a wake up call to what's really going on and how it is spreading because those friends I mentioned earlier were from that same town that I was from and they had, I guess it had reached down while I was flying up here. It was flying down there and we kind of crossed paths and you know, that, uh, whatever thinking had gone down there. So now it's everywhere. It's insane. It's, it was just kind of, uh, you know, just the, the wake up call that kind of got me interested in all this was being right. called racist cause I had to catch a train. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, um, that's what frustrated people with short fuses do is they'll just launch bombs at you. And the other thing, too, is, as has been mentioned before by lots of people, the, the, the word racist only bothers people who are bothered by racism. In other words, it only bothers people who aren't racists. Um, you know, if somebody you, you go to the call up a guy who's head of the clan and say, you're a racist. He's like, yep. 
<laughs> yes. I think you've got, you got your labels on correct there, son. Anyway, so listen, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but I really appreciate your call. I, I hope that this has been helpful. You, you focus on a big picture goal, the, the end result. Um, nobody likes going to the dentist, but, you know, in general, it's it's great to keep your teeth healthy and all that. And you are going to gain a great deal of knowledge about people you may end up in um, significant combat with. And I think that's usually a pretty good – I learned a lot about um, leftism from professors that I had. Uh, in school whether they liked it or not okay great well again thank you very much for your time i appreciate it and i want to once again thank michael for everything he does oh yeah and tim uh, send us uh, some of your music if you've got any that we can listen to i always uh, like to follow up in the artistic life of the audience sure if you like jazz i'll send it your way i do right. i assume because you like order there's no improvisation no, i'm just kidding there's nothing there's order to that too. that's 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 that learning the opposite of what you're talking about but that's great right. so anyhow. Right. well yeah i'd like to hear it so thanks Emil. Thank you, guys. I'll, I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. All right, up next, we have Jonathan. He wrote in and said, I'm a first-generation Ethiopian-American. My parents and some family members came to America for a better opportunity, like all immigrants. Growing up, I would always overhear family discussions about politics in Ethiopia. As passionate and sometimes toxic as these discussions got, the arguments were relatively the same. One side of the family is in favor of the current government, the other is not. With the knowledge that I now have listening to shows like yours and many others, it has puzzled me looking back how none of my family members, let alone Ethiopians I have met in general, have ever argued for a smaller government or a free market economy. My family members had to live through communism for a short period of time, and even the current government that overthrew the Communist Party is just a dictatorship disguised as a democracy. These people have felt and still feel the effects of what a corrupt government can do, and yet all they can argue is if the current ruling party should be replaced or not. My question is, why is it so difficult for Ethiopians to understand the importance of a limited government and having a free market? That's from Jonathan. You know, like the question said, you know, I always hear them talk about this and uh, it's just always puzzled me how it's always the same argument of, well, once we get a better person to come in, then everything will be better. But it's, uh, you know, there's so many tribes and, uh, you know, so many, you know, we talk about multiculturalism. Uh, it's like it's it's even worse over there because everybody's trying to get a hold of the state power and it's, it just always becomes a mess. What happens, I assume you have some sympathy for the smaller government position, is that right? Well, I am an I am a anarchist, but uh, I just... So, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... Well, well, it's well, so, I've tried go to, ahead. You know, when I was, um, when I talked to my family about libertarian ideals, you know, they just kind of, they just kind of put it in the same lane as being a Republican for some reason. So, really? Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. I don't know. Anarchist slash Republican. Boy, may, maybe I'll be called that one day. I don't know. No, I mean, um, yeah, I haven't told them that I don't believe in the government yet. I'm still trying to uh, study it up a little bit and uh, come up with better arguments for them. But for now, they just know that I'm a libertarian. <laughs> so, okay, what are the responses that you get from sort of family and friends when you get this perspective? Um, well, you know, what? How how is it? It's like, uh, what type of questions, uh, what type of... Uh, are you talking about? Well, you bring up you bring up like maybe the solution is less government or no government or whatever. And what do people say? If you bring that up, 
Um, well, you know, it's uh, it's not realistic or it's it's not going to be possible. You know, the government's already too powerful. They control the army. They control the police, blah, blah, blah. It's going to, if that type of thing would happen, it would be a bloodbath or, you know, something, something like that. Right. So <laughs> if everyone thought that, we'd still have slavery, which is kind of ironic. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. And now, have you... Uh, have you been back or it's not really back, I guess, if, if you were. Yeah, yeah actually, have you been uh, yeah, actually, I visited there a year ago. And uh, I mean, uh, during that year, of course, um, there was a lot of talk in the news of how the Ethiopian economy was doing like uh, really good. And uh, it's, you know, economic activity was increasing very well and everything like that. But when I went over there, I, I felt a sense of um, like it wasn't like truly any growth. I mean, I don't know. It's more like a. um you know, they built all these pretty buildings and, you know, they built this uh, railroad, this uh, railway station and train tracks and everything in the middle of the city for transportation and everything. But uh, it just doesn't feel like a true sense of economic growth. It just kind of, you know, I think they just kind of, they just try to play it out that way. I don't know. Well, so there's economic growth and the government scoops it up for useless vanity projects, right? Yeah. You know, just to make it yeah, look yeah. pretty and everything like that. You know, there's still, you know, kids, you know, I saw, you know, I saw how many kids digging up uh, on the side of the road. You know, I don't know what they were digging up, but you see, you see tons of kids digging up on the side of the road, and you see actually trucks. Uh, they're like trucks full of kids. I guess they come from like villages out of the city, and they come in and do some work, and they take them back or something like that. And I don't, God knows how much they get paid for what they do, but you know, it's still sort of those type of problems still arise. But you know, I don't know. And Jonathan, when you were over in Ethiopia, how long were you there for? I was there for four or five months. Oh, really? Yeah. What a, is it? I can't imagine a lot of direct flights. How long does it take to get out there? Uh well, yeah, mine was a uh, direct. Yeah, mine was uh, one way, so it took around fourteen hours, fifteen hours. Right, right. And I was a tall guy, so the, it, oh, it was so uncomfortable. How, t- how tall are you? I'm six two, but uh. Yeah, it just, that's uh, that's a little ugly for those seats, right? Which which seem to be getting smaller. Oh yeah, and it, but, it's just getting worse for the tall guy, I tell you. Yeah. Um. So when you were in Ethiopia, did you mostly sort of hang around family and friends? Did you get out to talk to the average or general person in Ethiopia much? Um. Yeah, I mean, you do get a sense. I mean, of course, you know, there there are those uh, who who don't mind what the government does as long as the economic um, activity still grows. And then you, and then, uh, and yeah, those are mainly the people that I've heard a lot, but, um, there are of course of those who are just completely against the government just want to change. But, you know, that's when that, uh, that sort of talk is kind of, um, uh, how, how should I say it? It's, uh, li- discouraged because, you know, people might overhear and stuff might happen. You know, there's a lot of censorship going on in Ethiopia right now with journalists and everything, you know, they get jailed if they, um, if their articles go against the government. So, you know, it's mainly people from out of the country that um, do articles and, uh, yeah, do mainly articles and stuff about what the government is doing, blah, 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 you know. Right. Um, Just to drag a few facts, I'm sure that um, most of the listenership not well-versed in Ethiopian economics, but... um, so, uh, according to the IMF, uh, this is uh, from Wikipedia, uh, Ethiopia was one of the fastest growing economies in the world, registering over 10% economic growth from 04 to 09. 
It was the fastest growing non-oil dependent African country in the years 2007 and 2008. Um, Ethiopia had witnessed rapid economic growth with real domestic product GDP growth averaging 10.9% between 2004 and 2014. And there were big challenges between 2008 and 2011. Uh, high inflation, uh, monetary oh, yeah. policy, inflation. Were you there? No, it was more recent that you were there, I assume. 40% well, I mean, the inflation. Infl yeah, the inflation is still bad over there. It's, it's crazy. Like one Right, and they, they cranked up the government pay in early 2011. And let's see here, um, 2011 to 2012, end-year inflation projected to be about 22%, but they tightened their monetary policy and uh, now down to single-digit inflation. So, yay, Ethiopia <laughs> actually doing some sensible stuff with monetary policy. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, like $1, I think, here over there is uh, uh, over 20 burr. So, like, I remember, I think I brought... I brought in uh, $1,000 when I when I went over there as a, you know, as a budget or whatever. And uh, over there, I think it was like $10,000, 10,000 burr. And I, at the time, I felt so rich. <laughs> I had never right. felt so rich in my life. I was like, just like. It's almost like you're in Zimbabwe. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was uh, it was an amazing feeling for those four or five months uh, for those. Uh, yeah, four or five months feeling uh, rich as I did. Right. And, um, you know, there's like 14 rivers that pouring off the high tableland, including the Nile. Yeah. It's got one of the greatest water reserves in Africa, but few irrigation systems in place to use it. Just 1% is used for power production and 1.5% for irrigation. Now, they've, you know, of course, they produced a bunch of major dams uh, recently. Yeah, they, they do have a hydro, uh, I think it's called a hydro dam or whatever it's called. Um, Planned Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Yes. The largest dam in Africa. When it's done, it can produce six gigawatts of energy. Yeah, and um, I have my reserves about that, but um, it's 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 pretty controversial because Egypt um, has been having a lot of issues with the um, with the dam being built itself, and a lot of people are actually scared that there might be a war that might be caused because of this. Because uh, I think a lot of the water now that's going into Egypt is uh, decreasing. As uh, as they keep building, well, as they uh, as the um, dam keeps getting built and everything like that, but right. And yeah. um, telecommunications is a government-run monopoly, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And they say, oh, it's to pr provide service to rural areas. It's like, nope, it's to control people's flow of information and and they control the internet as well. Actually, oh, yeah. uh, recently, what happened was um, uh, uh what happened? Uh, you know, at, and when you when you're a senior, you take a a, a state test. A, a nationwide test and uh, basically the answers to that nationwide test got leaked onto the internet and basically what happened was uh, the Ethiopian government shun shut Facebook and uh, this app uh, provider call uh, this app uh, uh, called Viber down they just uh, basically actually I think they basically cut off all internet uh, communication but uh, <laughs> it just shows how much control they have <laughs> Right. No, it, it is very strong uh, as far as that goes. Um, um, Ethiopia produces more coffee than any other nation on the continent, which doesn't really matter because almost all of it ends up in my belly. But, uh, of course, that's uh, pretty big. Um, only 681 kilometers of railways, uh, which is not they are. Yeah, they are recently – they are starting to build a lot of railways uh, and um, – uh, this is, of course, with the support of China, because a lot of the economic activity that's going on right now 
it's uh, with the support of China and their workers. Well, when I was over there, uh, like the first thing that that I remember when I first got into the airport last, uh, when I went to Ethiopia, was there was like a line of Chinese people all outside the airport, <laughs> and I was just so puzzled because they look so out of place. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but uh, they've 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 been using the help um, of the uh, a lot of the Chinese um, engineers and all that stuff to uh, get some of these railways uh, built and working and all that stuff and uh, make the uh, roads a little bit better. I, I think, um, and I think in return, I think a lot of the mineral resources that Ethiopia has will go to China because of I guess of their increasing population or whatever. Yeah, so the the economy has grown, but the Income is not growing particularly, and that's because of you know, huge population growth. From 1950, 18.4 million people in Ethiopia. As of 2013, that's 93.8 million, right? So almost a five-fold increase uh, in um, you know, 63 years. So that's you know, a bit of a challenge as far as that goes. Uh, you know, languages, 90 individual languages spoken in Ethiopia. Yeah, um, I mean, like I said, you know, the the multiculturalism over there is just so crazy, man. I mean, um, my my, uh, you know, tr and tribe tribes are very important in Ethiopia. That's one thing. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, when you have a state and when you have tribes, it's it's just it's a bad combination. Yeah, everyone's trying to grab the power to impose on others, and you know, the usual nightmare that we've seen throughout most of human uh, human history. Uh, big challenge, of course. Do you know the average IQ in Ethiopia? Uh, no. Would you like to know the average IQ in Ethiopia? I, I can, I have, I have my estimation. Please do. Uh, around 75. That's good. A little high. 69. Ah, damn it. Now, um, first of all, I want to tell you, Ethiopian food is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, actually, my mom owns one, uh, where I live at, so, uh. Oh, I wish that were closer to my house. I got to tell you, it is so good. Anyway, um, now, again, you know, environment, parasites, uh, education, who knows, right? But if you want to know why limited government is a bit of a challenging concept where, you know, in, in the Ethiopian tradition, I don't know, obviously, all the details, but... Um, you know, we've we've had um, experts on this show talking about how it's really tough to get limited government and democratic institutions running when your IQ of the general population drops below 90. Yeah. Right. So if we're talking 69, well, um, it's got a ways to go. Now, I don't believe that that's all biological or anything like that. There's probably six million other reasons why it's low. But until the... Um, general intelligence of the population has broader scope to improve, it seems unlikely that there's going to be the limited government stuff. Because then, limited uh, government is this big giant deferral of gratification, which isn't always a natural state of mind for people in that neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then there's, of course, it doesn't make it any better that a lot of the intelligence uh, moves out of Ethiopia and they go to all these... Like you. Yeah. Well, you know... <laughs> you bastard. No, I'm kidding. Right. <laughs> Right. I mean, no, if look, and I, I really like, I get that. I mean, because, you know, it's like part of me is like, well, stay and fix your own countries. The other part is like, what would I do? It's like, well, pretty much what you've done. So uh, I kind of get mean, that. Yeah, as you well. know, it's just, uh, yeah, you meet all these. And of course, um, a lot of the Ethiopians who come here, they work hard and they actually, they do send a lot of money out to Ethiopia. So I think one of the, um, they're like, uh, 
the money that's being sent to Ethiopia from, uh, out, you know, European countries or American countries or whatever, it's like in the billions that, or millions or billions, I think, I don't know, but it's a lot of money and, uh, it does help, uh, you know, the families over there somewhat, but you know, doesn't make that, I don't think it makes that much of an impact. And then of course, you know, I think the United States, uh, donates how many billions of dollars to Ethiopia each year, uh, just to, you know, secure the, uh, border between, <laughs> Uh, Ethiopian Somali and all that stuff and overlook Somalian uh, troubles. Well, of course, a lot of refugees from Somalia and other places are pouring into uh, Ethiopia, which is a challenge and destabilizing. There is, of course, um, foreign aid, foreign loans and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, has been a well-meaning, I guess we could say nicely well-meaning Western approach to problems, particularly in Africa, but has not solved uh, problems and of course, by fattening the state's coffers, it makes the state more of a prize to to take over, right? Because all this foreign aid money goes to whoever's in charge of the government, so it makes it even more valuable for people to take it over, which can contribute, I think, to some destabilization. And um, I think uh, what I read was that even the Ethiopian government tends to uh, hold it over the people, put a hold, you know, because what they do is they use the money to buy a lot of the. Um, the seeds and stuff for farmers to grow their crops or whatever. But what they do is they hold that money or the seeds or whatever over their heads and be like, if you don't support us, then we hold back all these, all this money that we have for you guys to, uh, to grow your crops and everything. And, you know, uh, I think, uh, I think what, what I thought about it was like, you know, it's kind of like, um, Ethiopia is almost like a welfare state for, <laughs> uh, and, you know, just, uh, the welfare that they get from all these European countries is not even making it any better. So, I think they should just stop donating totally and just... Uh, well, I'd also like it if they stopped uh, dumping all of this agriculture on international markets because, you know, Ethiopian farmers could easily compete with uh, a lot of the Western farmers, except that the Western farmers, because of all the subsidies and crap like that, just dump all of this stuff, not just in Africa, but elsewhere, which means it's pretty impossible for them not only to compete, but even to survive uh, in, in their own uh, environment. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, uh, it's a big it's, it's a big mess. But there has been, you know, uh, just in t 2000 to 2010, the number of Ethiopians living in poverty dropped by a third. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, now, unfortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it doesn't really matter. But the, the net result seems to be like, hey, we've got more wealth. You know what that means? Let's have more children. And yeah. then you kind of end up in that. Um, it's uh, uh, that yeah, having having a lot of children is a survival because a survival mechanism, because on my mom's side. Um, it's like, uh, I think my, my grandparents on my mom's side had eight children, nine children. And so I have sure. like seven uncles, like three aunts and, uh, it's a survival mechanism, you know, whoever, uh, who's the smartest or whatever, whoever has the, um, best job will be able to, uh, support the family. And it takes a while, right? So once, uh, once the wealth increases, then the infant mortality tends to decline and more kids will make it to adulthood, which means you don't have to have as many kids. Because yeah. you're worried about war or famine, disease or whatever it's going to be. Uh, but it takes a little while for that to kick in and for the birth rate to begin to decline. And, you know, hopefully that will start to happen at some point because, you know, if they keep having kids, it, it it's not going to do a huge amount to, to increase the wealth of the country in the long run. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I, I do have my hope. Um, you know, there are some um, there are uh, people out there. Um, I don't know. I forgot his name, but he's trying to uh, uh uh, overthrow the government i don't know um how well that's how how well that plan is going but uh he's trying to um uh i guess collect enough support to try to overthrow the government 
Um, but a lot of people don't think he's going to be able to do that. But we'll see how that goes. Right, right. In 1992, the proportion of the Ethiopian population that was undernourished was 69%. Uh, recently, it was clocked in at 41%. You know, that's uh, 20 years uh, is really good. Right now, we talked about sort of infant mortality. It's one of the highest in the world, 68 per 1,000 live births. That rate has dropped 39% between 1990 and 2010. Yeah. Um, the re- under five mortality rate has gone down by 47%. And, uh, you know, community health systems, more 35,000 healthcare workers uh, out there. And, you know, so right now, one in 11 children in Ethiopia do not live beyond their fifth birthday. I mean, that's after all of this uh, progress. And um, that is 30% of all deaths of women ages 15 to 49 are pregnancy related. Uh, and uh, so there is enormous progress. And, and, you know, this is something, you know, I, of course, I remember, like most people did, the images of Ethiopian famines and so on. It's yeah. heartbreaking and horrifying stuff. I, uh, I mean, people, I mean, from what my family members tell me, they say it was um, blown out of proportion in some ways. I mean, not blown out of proportion, but I think they just went to like the hardest stricken areas because yeah. my family members had to go through it, you know. And of course, it was bad for them. But, you know, it's not like they had skeletons on their I mean, you could see their ribs or something like that, you know. But I, I yeah, you know. Well, uh, I mean, to to raise the funds, they're not going to go to say, well, here's a relatively well-fed middle-class family. <laughs> gonna, yeah, you know, yeah, find, yeah, find. yeah. And of course, I think that was during the uh, the communist days when uh, the um, Haile Selassie got overthrown by the uh, uh, by uh, like um, by a communist party, and uh, they took over for a little bit, and of course. They killed off a lot of the uh, intelligent people. I think it's uh, called it's an event called the uh, Red Terror, and I think yeah. what they did was they uh, killed a lot of college students who were protesting the Communist Party, and they ended up massacring a lot of um, college um, students. And of course, that killed off a lot of the intelligence in the country at the time. Yes, and of course, uh, the the famine in, in, in famines in Africa are generally portrayed as natural disasters when a lot of times they're the result of socialist central planning and all of the inefficiencies and disasters that come from that. You know, like I just talked about uh, today uh, in a video about George Soros, you know, the, the, the Chinese famine of the 60s under Mao and the uh, Ukrainian famine under Stalin in the 1930s, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people died, but it wasn't a natural disaster. It was an engineered socialist disaster. And the same thing happens in Africa um, from time to time as well. And people are just like, oh, it's 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 natural disasters. We've got to go give more money uh, and the governments provide more foreign aid. In other words, the cure for socialism, more socialism. And things don't seem to, to improve in, in a sustainable way. But um, – you know, more education, you know, the, the degree to which you can get the word out there uh, in in Ethiopia to help people to understand the value of the free market. You know, obviously, it would be great if the society developed to the point where, you know, the, the, whatever environmental impediments there are to increases in IQ could be uh, ameliorated and, and then people could get a better society going and then more intelligent people would be more incentivized to stay, which, again, makes a society has the potential to become better. There is a virtuous cycle that can come out of this stuff that um, has not been happening as strongly, uh, particularly in Africa recently. But um, uh, that, I guess, that's that's the hope. And, uh, you know, I hope if there are people in Ethiopia listening to this, and I'm sure that there are, you know, please feel free to call in and give us the uh, the view from the ground. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I only have a, a limited uh, knowledge of a lot of what goes on in Ethiopia, but yeah. <laughs> Still much better than mine, I'll, yeah, I'll tell yeah, you that. True. Yeah. You've been there, I'm, I'm wiki, wiki, yeah. uh, 
pillaging some. Oh man, and try try going as a fat guy because I you know I'm, I'm overweight. And so when I went over there, man, you should have seen the stairs that I got <laughs> when I was over there. It was. Uh, it Were was, there stairs and condiments? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you know it's um my, my I remember my cousins telling me before I go to Ethiopia, uh, uh, before I went to Ethiopia, they were like you know. Uh, being fat over there means a sign of wealth, and I thought, of course, that they were joking. But of course, <laughs> but you know, when I went over there, uh, actually, what they said turned out to be very true. And uh, I got so I had so many poor people and homeless people follow me everywhere I went. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was interesting to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I've I've never been to that part of. I mean, I've been to South Africa and uh, I guess uh, Kenya, but uh, I've never been to that neck of the woods and i'm fascinated by all cultures and i would love to travel uh, more and and see this kind of stuff uh, for myself because you know you can't get much of a flavor for a place uh, by reading about it but um, i'm i find all of this stuff fascinating and uh, you know i have uh, great hope for the future of uh, africa you know i mean obviously you know maybe there's some genetic basis like you stuff that can't be overcome but i still think there's a lot of places uh, to go that are going to be a lot more functional and um yeah, I mean, uh, uh, now that a lot of the free market stuff has been developed by other thinkers, should be easier to implement. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the uh, people that come from Ethiopia to America, you know, the people that I've met, at least, you know, they're hardworking. You know, they 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 know what it's like um, over there. You know, to uh, you know, they know what the situation is like to be poor and everything like that. So when they come over here, you know, they have a hustler's mindset. You know, they're they're trying to get it, and uh, they do. I mean, uh, with some of the people that I've met, at least, and. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, unfortunately, you know, since uh, English is their second language, uh, most of them are kind of they kind of uh, don't want to go to college um, because it's hard. But, you know, they still make it relatively to uh, well, despite not having an education. Um, well, and the other thing, too, I've noticed, uh, maybe uh, this has been your experience, too, Jonathan. But what I've noticed is that people who who come from a less free place to the more free West love the freedoms, like really appreciate the market, the opportunities, the stability, the relative lack of corruption, like compared to where they came from, it's like they're like me, they're sort of kissing at the feet of of Western liberties and, and appreciate it a lot more. Of course, you know, like a hungry person appreciates the next meal a lot more than somebody who just ate. And I, I that level of uh, enthusiasm for liberties that most people in the West take for granted, I find enormously positive and refreshing. Yeah, and you know it's it's crazy um, because you know I used you know when when I when I when I was little and I would talk to, and I would hear overhear my parents you know they would have uh, I should say maybe negative things uh, to say about African Americans and I would always hate that with a passion because I always like you know I was like well you know, you don't know the struggle that they've been through they've been through slavery they've been through oppression and racism and all. <laughs> And I would just argue this. I'll be like, without Martin, and th- of course, uh, this was when I was like, you know, a uh, little kid. But I'll be like, you know, without Martin Luther King, you wouldn't even be here. <laughs> and uh, they would, uh, they would, you know, laugh it off and just be like, you know, you know, we come from the same situation, even and maybe even worse from where they're from, but we're able to get to a certain point um, where we're relatively successful and our children are successful. But you know, with the African American community, of course. Uh, it's not that it's not the same story, but well, they've not uh, they've not had to suffer through communism like your parents have, right? Yeah. And did you? I'm, I'm so, I, you know, I hate to bring up racism because it just sounds like a pretty typical topic, but I'm just kind of curious because we've had uh, some of the blacks uh, from 
uh, America on the show talking about their experiences of racism. Uh, have you experienced uh, much racism? Do you feel that that's a big barrier to you uh, in the West? Um, no, I've never experienced racism. Um, and yeah, it's no, you have. You just don't know it. It's structural. It's systematic. It's invisible. It's ghostly white against the snowy background. No, they're just kidding. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's kind of like uh, I've never, I've never experienced that, and uh, it's. Uh, it's something like uh, that everybody talks about. And so I'll probably like, I remember when I was little saying, you know, oh, well, you know, some white guy said this to me or something because it was just this pressure that I felt that I was supposed to experience racism, you know? And, uh, I, you know, I, I remember I would make up a story where I would be like, oh, well, you know, this white guy called me a nigger. And <laughs> I, I, you know, of course it wasn't true. And I regret, I still, I regret, I regret saying that, but it's uh, it's uh, there's this pressure to um, you know, if you're a black person, you have to you have to have experienced some sort of racism, and I always felt like, you know, well, I've never really experienced racism, but you know, it's uh, you know, uh, you know, I'll just make something up to be with the with the people, you know, to connect with them or something like that, you know. Right, right. Like I mean, there's that. I don't pretty funny uh, scene in some Eddie Murphy movie where one of his black friends, the waiter offers them asparagus spears. Uh-huh. And the guy's like, asparagus spears? You know, he didn't just call it asparagus. He's saying spears because he thinks we're savages like we <laughs> use spears. And it's just like, okay. That's yeah. very creative. Very yeah, creative. you know, and um, you know, when it you know, when it comes to Ethiopians in general, I mean, uh, just the ones that uh, come from Ethiopia, um, there is a sort of negative view towards African Americans. Um, and, uh, it can be borderline racism <laughs> at times, um, because of course, you know, there's that typical, um, immigrant argument where, you know, you know, I come from nothing. I come over to America and I made all this. Why are you still in the same situation complaining, blah, blah, blah. You know, English is not my first yeah. language. And, uh, you know, and I remember actually, um, uh, what was it? This, uh, I remember watching this, uh, movie by Ice Cube it was called Barbershop 3. And, uh, in this, in the, and there was a scene in the barbershop where there was this. They have this one Indian actor, and uh, he's the only immigrant, uh, only Indian guy in the barber. I mean, the only immigrants in the uh, barbershop, and uh, of course everybody's talking about racism, blah blah blah. And then, um, <clears throat> and then the Indian guy says, uh, "Well, you know, my parents came from India with nothing, and they came to something, and and they, I mean, and they became something." And then one of the ladies was like, "Well." Your people uh, chose to co- chose to come here. My people were forced to come here, and then just the, <laughs> I was the only one laughing in the theater because it was just, that argument was just so ridiculous. And then of course the Indian guy just uh, slowly puts his head down and he's just like, "You're right." I mean, he didn't say specifically. He didn't say you're right, but it just there was just this silence. So and then they just moved on to the next conversation. But <laughs> it's just uh, it's just that type of argument that always comes about. Yeah, I mean, it's not directly equivalent, of course, but I was brought to Canada against my will yeah. when I was a kid. I didn't want to leave England, and and uh, but that's what the family did. And it's not obviously like saying the equivalent, but, you know, we can all come up with some sad story about history that excuses the present. And uh, anyway. All right. Well, listen, um, hopefully this this helps, um, uh, you know, still still keep struggling as best you can to get better ideas across to 
um, the mothership as, as you know, I think you, you um, if you know the culture and, and have some understanding of it and have been there for a while uh, at times in your life, I think you'll have a credibility that will help. Again, if people are in that neck of the woods and want to call in and let us know here or let the world know what it's uh, like on the ground there. Uh, fantastic. It is great to read. You know, this is one of the great unsung victories of the past couple of decades is the number of people who've gotten out of poverty uh, is in the hundreds of millions around yeah. the world. And um, it is incredibly heartening. Uh, it is incredibly positive. And um, it's hard for people who have a more pessimistic view of the future to to understand just how incredible uh, the progress against poverty has been recently. And uh, I appreciate you for bringing this topic up, uh, not directly, but allowing us to, to talk about it, because it is very uh, encouraging and very positive. And it just goes to show that, you know, even if you're starting with a population with an IQ of 69, you can still get 10% economic growth year after year if you've got some capacity for people to self-organize along market principles. So let's just see how far we can take that and how wonderful the world can be. So thanks, Jonathan. You're welcome to call back anytime, and I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, everyone, so much for tuning in to Free Domain Radio. It is an enormous, deep, and abiding pleasure to um, have these conversations with you, with the world for all time. We are creating a nice little historical snapshot of where people are uh, from a variety of cultures and ethnicities and genders and so on. And I really appreciate uh, your participation in this conversation. To help out the show, uh, you know what to do. Of course, it's the natural thing, the wonderful thing to do to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate. Uh, really, really appreciate uh, your support there. You can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. You can help share the shows at youtube.com slash freedomainradio and fdrpodcasts.com. And last but not least, if you would like to use our affiliate link, thank you so much for that. doesn't cost you anything. helps us out a bit. You can go to fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Thanks, everyone, so much for a wonderful, wonderful show. We'll talk to you soon.